Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis and joining me this week, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, happy new year. Happy new year. How did you uh, see in 2018? Well, funny you should mention that, Ed. I have an interesting pop culture story to uh, to tell. <laughs> I spent uh, new year with my uh, jolly good friends, uh, Jane and Colin. Colin is the husband of my friend Jane, and Colin is German. This is an important part of the story. It is a German tradition at New Year, which this is the thing I was indoctrinated into this year. I'm going to say indoctrinated. Might be the wrong choice of words, but go with it. The, the, at New Year, it's, it's, a, it's a German family staple to watch a film called Dinner for One. Have you heard of this film, Ed? No. Well, you're gonna now. Um, okay. So I was like, what's Dinner for One? And Jane, who is English, was like, I said the same thing as well to every German person who asked me. They assumed that I would know what Dinner for One is, but didn't. And we watched it. It's on YouTube. It's widely available. I recommend that Ed puts the link to it in the show notes so people can see it. Dinner for One is an 18-minute music hall sketch from the 1920s that was performed in like uh, northern music halls by various performers, the most famous of which was a guy called Freddie Frinton, who made it famous. Mm. And what happened was, is sometime in, like, the 50s or 60s, some German TV producers were in Blackpool, and they saw this... It's a two-hander, like, this short comedic sketch, uh, like, one-act play, um, performed by Freddie Frinton. And it is about a rich socialite lady who's, like, 90 years old, and it's her birthday... And she is having a dinner for all her friends, but because she's got so old, all her friends have died. So her mm-hmm. butler impersonates all the guests. Okay. And gets increasingly drunk as the, he toasts for every guest as he goes round, and it's a very broad comedy. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this is an unusual thing anyway, because I was like, why is this famous in Germany? Mm. And then, like, I was like, well, this must be the English version. We're not seeing the German version. No, that is the version. They show the 1963 version that's in English, and they show it every single New Year's Eve in Germany and have done since the 60s. And (laughs) everyone watched it. Over half the population of Germany watch it. And this, I found out, there's a lot of things behind this that are interesting. One, it's never been shown in Britain, ever, (laughs) outside of being on stage in music hall times. Mm -hmm. It's not performed in German, because Freddie Frinton, the actor who's in it, who is, you know, a household name in Germany now, hated Germans so much <laughs> because of World War Two that he refused. Um, it's not just Germany. It's uh, Denmark show it every New Year's Eve. It's shown in Sweden, where it was banned very briefly for, like, like 11 years because it contained so much heavy drinking. They thought it would be a, a kind of, like, a, a bad example to set to the public. And it's shown in South Africa and, like, a ton of other countries. And I've never heard of this at all. And I'm like, what is this? And, like, everyone watches it, and they, they don't watch, like, new versions of it. It's the same version every single year. And I'm just baffled at how this small little bubble of, like, northern comedy culture exists in Europe 
and everyone knows about it. It's like famous. They can recite it word for word. We watched this with yeah, my friend Jane, her husband Colin, and Colin's like mum, who's like in her sixties, and she was just saying the lines out like as they came, like before the actors had even said them, because everyone knows it backwards and forwards. And I was like, how is this happening? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Like, we get the hooter nanny. Mm-hmm. With, you know, <laughs> like, have we got anything similar? Like, I mean, obviously, like Christmas, you showed this kind of films and stuff, but they've got like a bit more kind of cultural cachet. Mm. It's just a really unusual thing to be shown on New Year's Eve. But it's it's not just like a couple of countries. It's widespread. It's rife and it's spreading. Yeah, this is this is fascinating that this apparently is one of our great cultural exports as a nation. It's like when you find out that Norman Wisdom is hugely like famous in Albania because like, mm-hmm. he, he's like he's like considered like an A-list Hollywood star in Albania because mm. there was some kind of weird thing where they got all his films and they just show for free on a loop so everyone knows who he is. Mm. But this is just even more niche because at least we know who Norman Wisdom is. That's true. Yeah, we don't know who this Freddie Freddie Frinton. Frinton. Yeah, yeah. We don't have any idea who that guy is. I guess I guess the only thing I think of in the UK for a while, just in terms of weirdly specific New Year's, is that the BBC always used to air This Is Spinal Tap on, like, BBC Two, and they would always start it at 11.30, so it would be both the last film that aired in one year and the first year that aired in the other. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. There's nothing specifically New Year's related about that movie, but that was the one that they just went with, and I always thought that was a great way to see in the New Year. Hmm. Yeah, like I, I'm just like I think you should watch it. It's it's kind of funny, but mm. it's like you're not like this is sweeping Europe funny. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is like taking over. You know, this is this is something you need to watch religiously every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like the Germans in the room were falling about themselves laughing. <laughs> and I mean, I, I chuckled. It's funny, but like it's you know, I think maybe I should watch it every every New Year's Eve. Maybe that's it. Maybe it just it, it grows with every watch. Mm. Like uh, Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> exactly that. Like, it probably does air in Stockholm now. They've uh, got over the the, the serious uh, drinking issue. It's big in Switzerland as well, mm. uh, and it's uh, Norway. They show it uh, on Christmas Eve in Norway, I think. But I went deep down the rabbit hole of trying to find out about this, and I was just like, no one ever mentioned it, and I just wanted to get the conversation started about how weird this is. Do, do you think this ultimately is the root the root of uh, Britain's disassociation from the EU? That they could never look us in the eye because they'd be making all these references and be like, what are you talking about, mate? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, you don't even appreciate your own cultural giants. <laughs> yeah. It's like finding out Shed 7 are big in Japan. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just not right on any level. Yeah. Do you have any New Year's resolution stuff you want to do in the New Year? That uh, I know I have a few kind of film-related ones that uh, I'm going to try and stick to over the course of the year. Yeah, inspired by a lot of people on Twitter, and you you did it. Did you actually do it last year, the 52 films by women? Did you do it in a kind of an organised way, or were you, did you just I, watch a whole ton of women's films? I did it in 2016, an organised way, and then last year I just kind of continued and just mm. tried to make sure that I watched at least one a week, uh, and then I've kept a, a, a letterbox list of all the ones I've seen just as a, I guess as a resource, because I know that there are other people who have talked about wanting to do it and i was like okay well here's a list of 52 films if you want that to kind of draw from yeah well, i started it on new year's day um i think that it's a good thing to do because mm. it's something that is um depressingly difficult uh more difficult than you, you would imagine mm-hmm. um it's something that like it's hard 
to is like we talked just before the show about uh, ratios, and I think last year was reported in Hollywood, twenty two percent of films that were directed in in America were by female filmmakers, and that was the best year ever. Mm. <laughs> like the highest year ever. So it's it's really difficult to to do, and that it's even harder to find female directors with like a sizable canon. Mm-hmm. So it's, but like I said, lots of people have been doing this, and lots of people have been putting up their letterbox lists, and lots of people have been uh, making uh, just their daily entries to the to the uh, the project, kind of like very well known. And you're like, ah, oh, I didn't realize that's part of it. So you can, there's a ton of stuff to go down, and and I think I saw a couple of people on Twitter going doing this for their third year running, mm-hmm. trying to keep it so everything is uh, new watches, yeah, uh, not rewatching stuff. So yeah, it's. I really hope to make to kind of level it out a little bit um, and make a kind of a deliberate choice to broaden my viewing palette, get a bit of diversity of voice in there, um, but also make some really good discoveries. Because whilst looking at some of those people's lists that, that they'd put up, I was like, oh, there's some pretty amazing, exciting films that I kind of hadn't really haven't seen, and now this is a perfect excuse to check them out. And whilst also at the same time, like I say, kind of like widen my horizons a little. Mm, I'm uh, kind of doing a variation on that this year because last January, I think when I looked at the films I'd watched at the end of last January, I'd managed because I was I was trying to like stock up on films watched by women because I knew that as you get through the rest of the year and like all of the movies, particularly around Oscar time, everyone's saying, oh, you have to watch by and large are directed by men. So mm-hmm. I was kind of thinking... Those last few months, just because I'll be trying to watch a lot of stuff, there's like a chance I'll fall off on the films directed by women thing. So uh, I like, but at the end of January, I'd watched pretty much equal numbers of movies directed by women and men. And so this year, my aim is to keep a complete one-to-one ratio. So for every film I watch directed by a man, I have to watch one film directed by a woman. Currently, I'm at eight films for the year, and it is currently four each. So. As of the end of week one of 2018, this one is going swimmingly, but I think uh, I'm going to have to build up a, a nice cushion of movies directed by women uh, over the next kind of like three or four months before we get into the period where like all of the big Hollywood product comes down the pipe and it's pretty much all directed by men. Mm, it's a bit of a sausage fest, fest normally. Yeah. Uh, and the other one I have is uh, I'm going to go to the cinema to watch a movie at least once a week because uh, usually... I would see like a bunch of movies at the cinema, but it's though I'll sometimes just go weeks without seeing something because stuff doesn't interest me. And I think what's a good way to kind of expand your cinematic diet than basically saying, okay, you have to go, you have to go and watch something, mm. uh, which I did today by going to watch The Greatest Showman and I had a really good time watching it. But that was very much a movie that I thought, eh, I may wait until that comes out on DVD, but then you know, you have to go see a movie and it's the only one starting at 10 a.m. when the tickets are cheap, so you might as well. Yeah, I mean, I've got one of those cards that allows you to go to the cinema as many mm-hmm. times as you want, and, like, it is very tempting to just to go, especially someone like myself who who generally has, like, at least one day off during the week, so mm-hmm. I can go and sit in the cinema and have literally no one else in there um, and maybe even do two or three films in a row, but then it also becomes quite easy to stay in bed and eat, like, leftover Christmas cake and a handful of chocolate coins for breakfast whilst you just fire something up on Netflix, you know? Mm. So um, I, too, will be making an effort to go to cinema more whether I could go once a week or not because I know I'll get pulled into watching Geostorm uh, type <laughs> stupidity. 
Um, and yeah, I'm, I know that'll happen. But mm. you know, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, you, I, that, I, you know, at least you go in the cinema. Yeah, I also got given a movie pass for Christmas by my boss, but uh, they're currently, I think, about eight million people did that this year. They just got their their friends uh, movie pass tickets, uh, movie pass passes, and so there's a backlog, and I haven't received mine yet. But once I have received mine, <laughs> it will make it a lot easier to go. Just go and think, hey, free ticket, cheap tickets might as well go like one or two times a week. You're going to put their kids through college, Ed. <laughs> uh, the second Simpsons quote that I knew. <laughs> yep. Uh, you're going to have to at least learn one more. Just go on. <laughs> just go on Frinkiak and start typing in random words until uh, until one particularly salient one comes up. Mm, yeah. See what it gives me. Yeah. Uh, so we'll go on to the news. Obviously, first week of the year, there's not a huge amount, but there is sexual assault news, as uh, has been the case for the last like four months or so. In this case, it was uh, Paul Haggis, the writer-director of Crash, amongst other things, accused of sexually assaulting or harassing four women who previously worked for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of not that surprising in terms of like the, uh, the stories uh, have been coming out and that someone like him who at one point was kind of a big deal in the industry. Obviously, he won Best Picture and who, you know, wrote a bunch of movies that were acclaimed and, uh, but has kind of faded over the last couple of years. The the fact that, you know, he's, he's very gettable in terms of being someone that can be taken down, someone who doesn't have the power to kind of protect themselves and kind of like keep people away in the way that, you know, some powerful men in Hollywood do. The only kind of like weird thing about this one is that there was a lot of talk around the time that the accusations came out that maybe this is the church of scientology trying to kind of i don't know use the me too yeah use the me too moment to take him down because obviously he's been a critic of scientology ever since he left it but but i'm kind of like of the sense of like yeah i mean even if they are using that to kind of take him down if there's truth to the allegations i don't like mind I guess. Oh, I don't like, I don't have this kind of great sense of like, oh, Scientology is like so terrible that they shouldn't be allowed to take down Paul Haggis if he's done these awful things. I mean, Scientology Mm -hmm. is terrible, but it is very much a, you know, like in Godzilla, like Ken Watanabe saying, let them fight sort of thing. Mm. It's like, I don't really have much skin in the game on this one. Yeah. There's also something this week about Dan Harmon, but then it just instantly disappeared. Yeah, I think there the case was that he had been abusive in terms of the fact that he is like an alcoholic with mental problems who was put in charge of a writer's room and he was very verbally abusive to Megan Gans, who was one of the writers on Community for uh, at least one year, maybe two years of the show when he ran it on the first three years. And basically, yeah, they, they had an interaction on Twitter in which he was like saying, hey, you know, anything I can do to get absolution? And she basically said, well, no, because you caused me great distress because of the way that you acted towards me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, like, no accusa- specific accusations were thrown around. There was just that general sense that he was probably... And, you know, this is not that surprising considering the stories about him just generally and the fact that he is, you know, he was married to Erin uh, McGaffey for like a year before they divorced. So like the idea that he's perhaps an incredibly difficult person to work with and to be around is not that surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and by his own admission as well. Yes. He is very forthright about the fact that he is like a really difficult and uh, kind of terrible person. And I guess his 
desire for absolution is something to be commended, even if trust is probably not the healthiest way to go about doing that. And certainly asking for it in a public way like that is, I don't know, there's something weird about that, something that's off-putting. Mm, yeah, and it's um, the Golden Globes tonight, isn't it? Like mm. right now. And uh, there's a lot of the um, Time's Up protest, everyone wearing black. And uh, I've just seen on Twitter uh, Justin Timberlake uh, tweeting his support for it, um, which rings a little hollow considering that he is currently in the new Woody Allen movie. Yes, yeah. Uh, and David Crumholtz uh, apologised for being in Wonder Wheel, didn't he, on Twitter this week? Because he, he's in it and he says, you know, I deeply regret working Woody Allen. We shouldn't, I, I'm, I consider it a great mistake on my part to have been involved in Wonder Wheel. Uh, we should not allow, basically saying we should not allow this guy to continue working, which mm. uh, is, you know, a, a very good sentiment. But again, there's of that sense of like, well, it's hardly like the accusations came out three weeks ago. Mm. Like, like these things, the things about Woody Allen have been known for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we first talked about them about two years ago. Yes, and we were hardly the first. So. Yeah, and, you know, we're, we're hardly Hollywood insiders. Yes. Um, so I'm pretty sure they, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were signing up for. Yeah, so um, so there there is that sense of, like, you don't want to be too dismissive of, of people like, like David Crumholtz coming forward and saying, like, you know, this was a mistake, I'm not going to work with him again in the future, and acknowledging that you know the uh, the situation has in the industry has changed a lot but mm-hmm. at the same time you know it's hard to accept them kind of fully back and say like mm, well yeah sure let's buy let, let's let bygones be got bygones because yeah this stuff was not you know it wasn't an open secret because it wasn't a secret like mm. all, all of the things about Woody Allen well not, not even all the things but like the worst things have been known about in the public record for a very long time mm. Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing I had in the news most recently was that the the death of Jerry Van Dyke, who was the brother of Dick Van Dyke, a kind of veteran sitcom actor and comedy actor in the US, uh, star of the sitcom My Mother the Car, one of the most kind of most fascinating from a Freudian perspective sitcoms ever made. But I wanted to mention him just because he is the subject of one of the weirdest jokes I've ever seen in a TV show. In the 90s, there was a sitcom called Teen Angel, which was created mm-hmm. by... Mike Reese and Al Jean, two of the former showrunners of The Simpsons. It was about a boy, well, a teenage boy whose best friend dies after eating an old burger and then is uh, brought back to life as an angel, bossed around by Ron Glass, the great Ron Glass, playing Rod, the cousin of God, who... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a very Brilliant. strange show. Uh, and uh, I think it lasted for two seasons and partly through the first, I think, the actress playing the mum just up and left. I think she just quit because the of the show <laughs> because of the kind of show it was and jerry van dyke kind of got brought on in a sense of ah here's your granddad he's in the show now and mm-hmm. at one point the main character was talking to his angel best friend about satan and they mentioned think about satan and his hairy van dyke and then jerry van dyke turned around and said hmm, me and i just thought that was such a weird meta joke to have in this broad disney sitcom uh, and it stuck with me because at the time i it was just so weird and baffling a choice uh so that's that's my jerry van dyke story and i want to say that because i, I feel like i'm one of only about seven people who watched every episode of teen angel so yeah, i feel like I, think I need to spread they, the legend yeah well i think the the only rational thing to do is to get everyone to watch it on new year's eve um <laughs> and then start to get kind of like a little bit of tradition going and then everyone will get that jerry van dyke joke and it'll have some kind of cultural currency for once exactly and yeah that was a 
super weird show. There is one episode involving time travel, which I remember being very fond of, which is where the main character, the, the angel, goes back in time to stop himself eating the burger, but then his best friend eats the burger, and the best friend goes back in time and stops him from eating the burger, and then the mum eats the burger, and they just keep going until everyone on the show has died. <laughs> and wow. it was it was very much one of the strange, conceptually one of the strangest shows I've ever seen on television. And also, I think, was like a weird adaptation of an old TV movie, which was like a genuine, earnest movie about, oh, this guy's best friend died and his, his, he's come back to kind of help him through life. Whereas this one was just like this weird anarchic thing, which at one point had a, t- had a velociraptor in it drinking beer. Yeah, I'm starting to think this is a weird fever dream. <laughs> this is not a real show. Uh, well, you can ask Mike, Mike uh, Reese and Al Jean, but I think they probably would deny it. They'd yeah. be like, nope, we worked on The Simpsons, The Critic, and nothing else. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. We have a whole new year's worth of delights ahead of us at the cinema, and also a whole year's worth of dreck. But uh, we're going to try and focus on the stuff that we hope won't be dreck um, over the course of the next well, the next eight months, because we do two previews, obviously. We do one of the first eight months that takes us through the end of Blockbuster season, and then we'll come back in September and do one for the kind of the awards uh, uh season. So we're going to talk in this episode about the movies over the next eight months or so that have got us uh, really excited. Uh, you and I both drew up kind of lists of stuff we wanted to talk about, and uh, we're going to kind of run through them in no particular order. But uh, I think we're going to both start with... Probably one of the most anticipated blockbusters of the year, uh, certainly mine. Uh, I'm going to t- we're going to be talking about Black Panther, the mm. Ryan Coogler movie, the adaptation of the Marvel series of comics and the, the Marvel character, which from all indications looks like it's going to be pretty crazy. Mm. And there's like there's really three things that are exciting about it. One is Ryan Coogler, who is mm-hmm. uh, currently hitting a thousand in terms of. Uh, good films. I mean, Fruitvale Station is not as good as Creed, but it's still a good movie. And it's a great, in terms of, like, calling card first movies. Is, yes. It, it feels like... Because sometimes you get something like, I don't know, a safety not guaranteed, where you think, okay, that's fine and put together, but it or, or Cop Car, the John Watts movie, where you think, this does feel like they made this because they thought, okay, this is, like, a cheap thing and it will get me uh, my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Whereas Fruitvale Sa- Station is, like, them going, okay, I'm going to make a first movie, but it's going to be about something that's going to be important. But it's yeah. not going to be, like, self-important. Mm, absolutely and it, it it does walk that line a little but um ultimately it's great but anyway yeah uh, uh two is the cast which mm. uh is surely one of the strongest ensembles of the year and the kind of thing that happens so rarely that you get so much talent for 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 in an industry where roles for uh black actors and actresses like uh, you know many examples it's kind of reduced to uh kind of broad stereotypes or best friend roles or supporting roles. This is an astonishing collection of, uh, of acting talent, which is the second reason it's, uh, that is super exciting. And the third reason is just how fucking far out the style looks um, yes. and how exciting the and dynamic the action looks in uh, what we're number 18 in the Marvel Studio movies film. Or is this number 19? I think, I think this is 18. This is 18. Yes. And like... We said with Thor Ragnarok, we got something that we weren't really expecting. It was still uh, a lot of the same pieces, but put together in a different way and a, you know more kind of genre. This looks like we are going to to go kind of like a little further, and it's just very very exciting to see all these things in in one place. And it's like we've seen people this week like 
tons and tons of people retweeting the the toy advert for Black Panther um, with like the Black Panther mask and some like toys, and you're like, why why is that exciting? And people are like. Well, this is like the first time you're seeing like uh, black kids playing with black superheroes on TV, and this is like a huge, huge thing. And like, mm. it doesn't feel like uh, at any point tokenism. It is fucking black as shit. This film, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? They have really, really gone for it. And like, I, you know, I'm so excited about seeing it. Yeah, the uh, the whole Afro futurist look is really cool, and the fact that. Like you say, that that Disney seemed to have reached a point where, you know, phase one movies, which were split between them and Paramount, I think, was the ones who released the first couple of Marvel Mm -hmm. movies before the buyout. There, they were kind of, they took a a handful of, like the biggest risk, obviously, Robert Downey Jr., because there was no guarantee that that guy could uh, anchor a huge million dollar movie and then ultimately a kind of multi-billion dollar franchise. But, But they was kind of, didn't take too many risks and then after the avengers came out you got a bunch of movies that were good but also didn't kind of play too much even though they're all guaranteed to be really successful but since like uh, in this kind of like phase three or whatever like you do really feel as if they are allowing directors to play around a bit more you definitely saw that in thor ragnarok which is basically just taika waititi being given a huge amount of money to make a taika waititi movie uh, mm-hmm. that happens to star recognizable characters and this you know the 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 amount of of money and support they're putting behind a movie that is so committed to a very specific aesthetic that doesn't look like what most Hollywood movies look like at all and the fact that you've got things like they announced this week that Kendrick Lamar is going to be curating the soundtrack and he released mm-hmm. a song with him and Scissor which is a really cool track it really does feel like this is a it obviously like you know there's another Mar- there's like another two Marvel movies coming out this year and one of them is probably going to make more money but this feels like but that's not even assured uh, this certainly feels like the one that feels like more of a seismic event in terms of this is something that we haven't seen in a Hollywood movie before. Yeah, and it's... Every Marvel movie is an event with speech marks around it, as in, like, it's a big movie that's coming out. This feels like it matters. It feels mm-hmm. like it's important, and it feels like it could be, like, a pivot moment. Um, and this yeah. following with, you know, another film we're going to talk about, the Ava DuVernay movie, are the, the two very big moments in, in kind of, like, 21st century film history. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's a huge success, which I think there's a very good chance it will be, you know, it's going to open so many doors for Ryan Coogler, who is already, he's, he he has kind of getting a Guillermo del Toro-like slate of projects being thrown at him that he's going to be involved with and help push. And, you know, it's going to take all of like those actors to the next level, like like a Michael B. Jordan, who obviously has been around for, for a really long time, you know, where... 15 years away from him playing Wallace in The Wire and he's still yeah. he's still working hard and he's still getting he's getting bigger and bigger in roles yeah there's just so much potential in it to you know kind of really kick down some doors in Hollywood in the way that uh, has been kind of happening a little bit like you say with, with Ava DuVernay's success and her career but uh, this could be you know it could be something huge mm, mm, and I hope it makes a Fucking ton of money. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Another movie that may or may not do a huge amount of money, but because uh, some people seem to feel very 
uh, sketchy about its its chances at the moment is Solo, a Star Wars movie. A Star Wars story, sorry. Um, mm. It'd be even lazier if they just called it a Star Wars movie. Yeah, it's, it's just a like, Star Wars movie. Just take it. We've already done... We've got plans for 27 of these. You might as well just start calling them movies. <laughs> Star Wars prequels, you know, there's been a rocky history of those. We've had one good one. And yeah. Three not-so-good ones. And this one, uh, you know, it started with a lot of promise because we had Lord and Miller who were coming off of the, the Jump Street movies and Lego movie and who seemed to take it in kind of an interesting and strange direction that people at uh, Lucasfilm seemed to get spooked by, so they fired them midway through a, a shoot, which is still a crazy thing to think, considering how close to the end of shooting they were. They brought in Ron Howard, mm-hmm. and so the, and the early word, which can always be... Uh, which is, is not always to be trusted, is that it's kind of a mess because you are trying to bridge two very different styles of movies from what they wanted to do and what Ron Howard is doing from the Lawrence Kasdan script. So... I'm I'm still hopeful for it because you know I like uh, I really really liked uh, Alden Ehrenreich in uh, Hail Caesar and you know I love pretty much everyone who's involved with it in Wife of Crest. You know Amelia Clark's good, uh, Donald Glover is is fantastic, and I just I just really I really hope that it ends up being okay. But mm. it's it's gone through such a mangled production that even if it is good it's going to kind of it's going to have the problem of something like an ant-man where you think even if it turns out pretty good you're still going to be thinking about you know what 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 don't we have because uh, the movie had such a, a weird production yeah and i mean like them being fired at that point was like you say very unusual but what is even more unusual about it is, is something I think that uh, Scott Weinberg said on Twitter that if you start a movie with Lord and Miller and you replace them with uh, Ron Howard, you don't really know what the tone of your movie is. Mm, um, yeah. Which is that's the worrying thing. Um, I'm I'm kind of I'm not optimistic about it because the thing about Lord and Miller is they are renowned for making really good films from terrible ideas. Yeah, uh, a Twenty One Jump Street movie sounded like a terrible idea they turned it into a great film a lego movie sounded like a terrible idea they turned it into a great film and they did it again with 22 jump street and they seem to have the golden touch with taking ideas that sounded shitty and you know making them work now do we need to see a han solo prequel no we really did not need to see it and when they said they were going to do it i was like okay fine and then when they announced the Lord of Miller were doing it, it suddenly became something to be excited about. And now, obviously, they're not on it anymore. It's, still, it's just a bad idea being made by someone who doesn't have a great uh, track record. Ron Howard's made some good films, um, but he's also made a lot of kind of filler, I guess. Mm. Um, um, but, yeah, I'm not excited for it because I've said this several times many many times the the great thing about star wars is someone says something and it's just kind of throw away so mm-hmm. if someone says they've done the castle run in 12 parsecs it's just a cool thing that someone says and now we're gonna see someone do the castle run in 12 parsecs when han meets lando and in empire strikes back and chewie makes a joke that we can't understand because he's speaking as a wookie that that han hopes that lando's forgotten about and you know when he makes the joke about, oh, yeah, you know, are you treating my ship well? And he's like, your ship? Oh, yeah, I want it off you fair and square. We're now going to see that happening in a prequel. And it's like, we don't need to see those things. They're things that sound cool when you say them. And now they're 
Disney Lucasfilm are just kind of obsessively going through and filling in all these details, mm. which just don't need to be filled in. Yeah, and there was a whole trilogy of Han Solo prequel books in the 90s, which I, of course, read, which mm. did fill in all of those details, and it was never satisfying. It was never yeah. satisfying being told, like, all of these things, even though I did like that that trilogy literally ends with Obi-Wan walking towards the table <laughs> at the start, the, the moment that uh, that Han Solo is introduced in in Star Wars, uh, which I kind of thought was like, okay, that's a, that's a pretty good commitment to the whole idea of explaining this whole character. But yeah, the, the thing that's good about Han Solo and a lot of the Star Wars stuff, and this, this has been proved time and time again, is like a lot of the great things about the, the original movies was they did feel fully developed on screen like they came in and it's like okay these are fully realized like i don't need to have these things explained to me i believe that this kind of roguish violent guy but charming guy exists in this world and i don't need to see like how he became that way and mm -hmm. just as like i don't need a scientific explanation for why the force happens i'm happy with it being magic you don't need to explain that it's all about bacteria or whatever so yeah so the idea of a whole movie being devoted to explaining what all those kind of tossed off bits of dialogue in the other movies are about does feel like it could be very tiring unless handled well and mm -hmm. everything about the production of the movies suggests that it probably isn't going to be handled well because you're either going to get a wildly inconsistent tonal mess because of the two different types of movie that were being trying to be made or they've kind of reshot pretty much the entire thing with a kind of like a capable steady hand in the form of Ron Howard but it's not going to have a huge amount of spark because it wasn't produced under the best of uh, circumstances mm, and uh, Rogue One had its problems they reshot a ton of that um, and that turned out and the more I watch Rogue One the more I enjoy it actually that kind of grows with every watch um, for me um, but when Ron Howard came on from from what I've read, and and this is kind of borne out by just how long they kept shooting after Ron Howard took over. Mm, um, yeah. Is that he reshot a substantial amount of the the film, and I, and from what I was kind of reading, which seems to be easily verified, is that Ron Howard works very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so he actually managed to come in and reshoot a lot of footage, and and then from that stuff and what he was seeing and stuff he could then had time to reshoot more and add extra bits so you know how much of a percentage will be lord and miller stuff left in there who knows i would imagine some of the action stuff would have been left in there because that would be really expensive to redo yeah um but if that's the case then are we going to have like jarring scenes where one thing doesn't link to another and you know the character's really inconsistent and yeah, I'm not hugely hopeful for it, but, you know, it's a Star Wars movie and we're going to talk about it. It does slightly kind of perturb me that we're a little over five months away from seeing it and we've not had anything mm. in terms of promotion from Disney who like to get stuff out nice and early, even just like a teaser or anything. And I think we've seen one official image of the promotion, which leaked a couple of weeks ago, which just turned out to be the toy yeah. packaging. And that is really it. And, like, Disney don't normally let the first thing that comes out mm. be a leak. Um, so I'm kind of concerned as to why we've not seen anything. And you see, you know, the bottom of 
a lot of websites you get all that horrible kind of clickbait stuff that's like oh 10 stars you never knew were dead or like you know the real reason no one likes working with x or whatever um there was like the one that i saw the other day it was like disney have confirmed that they expect it they're writing off han mm-hmm. solo and like you're not writing it off if you've just committed millions of dollars reshooting it yeah yeah they they clearly want it to be a success but yeah yeah, they are trying to make the best of a bad situation because they can't push it back like six months and release it in December the way they have the previous Star Wars movies because it's too it's too close at this point and it, that would send too much of a oh shit, this thing's a disaster message. Mm. But even though that probably would be the best thing to do in order to, you know, iron out any problems with it because, you know, like you say, the film was pretty much done when they fired Lord and Miller and then they kept shooting for a huge amount of time. Those aren't necessarily conducive to a great final product. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll have to kind of cross our fingers and hope for the best with that one. Yeah, our expectations are so low, mm-hmm. is what I'll say. Nicely done. Yeah. Okay. Well, next one uh, we've got on the list is Yardi, which is the directorial debut of one Idris Elba. Yeah, nice. I was kind of surprised at this. I kind of was doing a bit of research for what was coming out this year, and I was kind of i mean always known that he's a bit of a, a kind of polymath mm-hmm. uh kind of like a musician dj fine actor incredibly handsome man mm-hmm. and yeah he's making his directorial debut it's a adaptation of a cult novel called mm-hmm. of the same name about a young kind of jamaican uh immigrant who comes to england and gets caught up in um, the kind of Yardie gangs in, in kind of like a 60s London. And I don't know too much about it, but I just think all the ingredients uh, make it sound like something to keep an eye on. Because Idris Elba is always one of those people that really just really want to break through with something massive. Mm-hmm. And he always does really good work in whatever he's in, even if it's, you know, dreck. But I just really want him to have something that's on him completely. Yeah, and and it's such a fascinating kind of area of British history that is under the stories that are undertold about the experience of because there are there's a huge number of, of kind of Jamaican immigrants who came over in the 60s and settled in the UK huge Jamaican populations in in London and and you know other than I guess Lenny Henry's stand-up there's like not a huge amount of people out there telling those stories in a big uh, populist way that reaches a huge audience and this mm-hmm. in in terms of it being what sounds like a fairly exciting crime story feels like something that could really break through and remind people that, you know, there are different sides of Britain that don't get shown in the kind of movies that usually get made in Britain because, you know, our national cinema is very, uh, is very white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has to be said. And we don't do a great job of telling stories about people who aren't white. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me in terms of the milieu of something like White Teeth. Mm. Um, the Zadie Smith book and subsequent TV miniseries. Um, if you can kind of capture that kind of vitality of the era, what was also kind of being uh, political, but perhaps not too on the nose. Um, I just, I just kind of really wish Idris Elba the best of all luck. I mean, mm. he's a lucky guy anyway because he's got a face like Idris Elba. But yeah, he is someone that I just really want to do well, and uh, this sounds like an interesting project. So that's why I kind of pitched it on the list. Yeah, and uh, looking into it, certainly it sounds like something that could be really exciting. I'm always, I'm always uh, a little trepidatious about when actors switch to directing because they don't necessarily always have the best visual sense for storytelling. Like, 
you you get some people who are who make the transition uh, brilliantly, but like Greta Gerwig did a really good job this year. Although that wasn't really her debut because she's already co-directed a movie with Joe Swanberg, but who hasn't? But mm-hmm. but for a lot of the time, you get things like that movie that uh, that movie that Mark Ruffalo did. I think it was called Sympathy for Delicious, which the the title alone should <laughs> should warn you. Where they're just kind of like bad actor showcases, but I think this one. It, they, they, uh, actors seem to make a better stab of it when it's tied to kind of a, a genre element that's kind of demands that they have to think more visually than just focus on the performances. And mm. I think crime is, is a good way to kind of segue into that. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that one. I really hope it gets a kind of widest release. I know that it's, uh, it's going to play at Sundance, so whether we'll see it this year is quite another thing because sometimes films can do really well at Sundance and then you kind of don't hear about them for a while and then all of a sudden they get um, dumped right at the last minute of of, uh, Oscar season. So hopefully we'll see it this year. I'm going to make a wild prediction now and say that Netflix pick it up. (laughs) Yeah. Based on the fact that I know that Luther plays very well on Netflix and Mm -hmm. it seems like the sort of thing they would leap at, particularly particularly if the film's good. Yeah, uh, Beast of No Nation as well was their, yes. their big first production that was Idris Elba starring. Yeah, so I reckon uh, if the reviews are strong, we could expect a bidding war and it will show up on Netflix before the year is out. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunately end up being forgotten, like uh, Mudbound or uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Mm, yeah, which would be a crying shame. Yes. Uh, another actor turned director is Paul Dano, who is directing the movie Wildlife. Which, again, I have trepidations, but I like Paul Dano a lot. Yes, but it's also exciting because it's co-written by Zoe Kazan, mm-hmm. who uh, co-starred with uh, uh, in The Big Sick earlier this year, but she is a real-life uh, partner of Paul Dano, and yep. they've written this uh, together. He's directing it. Um, and it just it, when I read the description of it, it sounds very much like The Ice Storm, the Ang Lee movie from the late 90s, which I love. Kind of a story of a, a kind of like a nuclear family kind of dissolving um, in kind of like simmering tensions as the dad of the family loses his job um, and uh, the marriage dissolves. It's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Kerry Mulligan mm-hmm. uh, who play the couple and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of sinks into an alcoholic stupor and then disappears to fight wildfires on the Canadian border uh, whilst Kerry Mulligan begins uh, an affair with an older man. Uh, I mean, that just sounds great in, you know, in a kind of like revolutionary road type kind of, you know, that whole uh, behind the, the, the white picket fence of suburbia that everything is not quite what it seems. But I love those kind of stories. You know, Mad Men did it so well. And, and like I said, the ice storm was a little bit later in history. It was it's kind of set against Nixon and stuff. But, you know, I, I can't get enough of that, uh, that kind of like fractured Americana stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the sort of thing that, when done well, can be, you know, really riveting stuff. It, either in kind of, like, a darkly funny way, in, like, I think the Ice Storm has, you know, the Ice Storm's devastating in some ways, but there are some kind of, like, there are some funny moments in the interactions, or uh, Revolutionary Road, which isn't a great film, but it is a very, it's a great showcase for actors. Uh, it's a great it's, book. It's a great book, yes. Mm. Uh also, did you know that uh, Richard Yates is the inspiration for the character that uh, Lawrence Tierney played on Seinfeld? I didn't. I knew that he was he was a, an actual author. Yes, but I didn't know it was. Yeah, I didn't uh, know it was him. Larry David 
dated uh, 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 Richard Yates's daughter, and the first time he met him was pretty much exactly as when Jerry meets Lawrence Tierney uh, and just kind of destroyed him <laughs> in in their conversation, which I always think to be uh, really funny in how uh, this guy who you know, went on to be a hugely successful uh, writer and performer in Larry David, just being completely dismissed by <laughs> this, uh, you know, author who wasn't exactly the biggest name, but was certainly kind of like a literary great. Yeah. Uh, and there's also lots of fun stories about Lawrence Tierney on the set of Seinfeld, trying to steal a knife from the apartment set and then trying to stab Jerry with it. <laughs> wow. He's a, he's a weird man, Lawrence Tierney, yeah. a weird man. Next up, we'll talk about a kind of a film on a kind of bigger end of the scale. We mentioned it, kind of, or referred to it earlier. Uh, we'll talk about A Wrinkle in Time, which is the movie by Ava DuVernay based on the classic novel. Yeah, the classic novel that no one I've spoken to has ever read or heard of. I understand um, it's a bigger deal over here than it yeah, is in the UK. Have you read it? I have not, but I have seen about one million copies of it being kind of like uh, stacked up in every bookshop I walk past over the last six months. So I think it's if people haven't read it, they've had ample opportunity to kind of catch up before it comes out. Yeah, I'm, and I don't know uh, too much about the story or anything, but uh, I, uh, Ava DuVernay straight away, you know, that's a, um, a name you want to see uh, behind the camera. But then as soon as I saw the trailer, I was like, this looks really fucking weird, and I'm mm. into it. Yeah, it's visually, it looks uh, pretty incredible. It's, uh, I think, I believe a story that takes place in multiple dimensions. So it's the sort of thing that lends itself to a visually ambitious filmmaker who decides, who who, uh, can illustrate all these different worlds and the uh, characters that kind of guide the main character through, who are played by Oprah Winfrey, uh, Winfrey, Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling. And I think there's a fourth one that I'm forgetting. I want to say it's Tracy Ullman, but I don't think it is. Maybe. But, you know, they they are such distinctive characters and everything, like the trailers for it have been really sumptuous in terms of promising a real kind of visual overload. It looks, for a a kind of a Disney movie, it looks closer to something like a, a movie we mentioned recently, like something like Cloud Atlas, something that is just kind of a real overwhelming visual experience. Mm, yeah, and it, I, it's one that when you speak to people in England about it, they're excited if they know who Ava DuVernay is mm-hmm. or they're drawn in by the trailer. I, I kind of don't know how much traction it's going to get outside of the US where the source material is not quite so revered. Mm. Although Disney alone amongst the big studios do seem to be the, the only ones who are really focusing on US business anyway. Like right they don't mind that much that The Last Jedi isn't doing well in China because they Mm -hmm. know their movies will do well in the US. And so I think the idea of them getting behind a movie that they hope will just do really good business in the US and then everywhere else is gravy, you know, helps with a movie like this where the appeal may be more regional than something like a Harry Potter where, like, everyone on Earth pretty much read it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm... I'm happy to kind of open the mystery box on this one um, mm. and just be taken on a kind of magical voyage. And, and is it like one of many books? Is it uh, like a, a series? You know, can, if, it's, if it's successful, should we expect more wrinkles in time? Uh, I don't believe there are other books in the series, but maybe it's just like the first one is the one that everyone knows and then the other ones all have like different names that you wouldn't think are related to it. But Right, uh, okay. 
certainly it would be it's exciting either way like oh Ava DuVernay is going to have a franchise to just keep jumping back to in between all the other work she does uh, or the idea of Disney saying hey let's just do a big one-off movie like let's not worry too much about franchise potential let's just do something big one-off and kind of push it out into the world and uh, also it's exciting and you know we were talking about uh, Ryan Coogler directing Black Panther earlier I believe this is the first time in Hollywood history that a black female director has directed a movie with a budget of over $100 million. Mm, I think she's only the second female director to direct a movie over $100, period. $100? Sorry, $100 million. The patriarch is not that strong. (laughs) Yeah, the pay gap gap is real, but it's not that bit. It's not that real. Um, Yeah, it's... um, Patty Jenkins? Yeah, it was Patty Jenkins last year, yeah. Yeah, so... That it's 2018. It. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully that will also, you know, lead to more opportunities for other filmmakers. And certainly, uh, Ava DuVernay herself, through like her work hiring people to work on Queen Sugar and things like that, she is someone who is committed to raising people up. So you know, if this movie is a big hit and uh, enhances her kind of bargaining power in Hollywood, hopefully she'll be able to to stand as a supporter for. Uh, other female directors. Uh, next up, we have a movie whose title I am I love. Uh, the Catcher Was a Spy, which is yes. I'm not sure if it is a weird pun on the Catcher in the Rye, but whether or not it is or it's intended as that or not, I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it is a very li- literal pun because it is about a major league baseball catcher who was a real person mm-hmm. uh, called Moberg, who not only was a, a major league uh, a baseball catcher, hence the title. Um, he was uh, a kind of a TV personality, a, a held an Ivy League degree, um, but was also uh, a spy during the war for the OSS and also a closeted gay man, um, wow. which would have been, which is a a kind of like, I mean, that's a CV right there. Mm-hmm. And what you think would be ripe for drama. Um, so we are um, going to see a film about his life. Um, where he is drafted by the intelligence service to stop a German scientist building a nuclear bomb, I think, or the atomic bomb. Um, and Paul Rudd plays Moberg in a... I'm not sure what the tone in this movie is going to be. Hopefully it's going to be serious tone. I've always thought Paul Rudd would be an excellent dramatic actor. Uh, there's Guy Pearce in it, Paul Giamatti, Jeff Daniels. Great cast, intriguing premise. Mm. Fingers crossed, hope it's good. Yeah, same here. That is. That sounds like an incredible story uh that uh yeah it's kind of amazing that that story hasn't been told at this point because <laughs> it's it's so ripe with jar- uh, with drama that it feels like it's, it feels like one was probably knocking around for a, a long time everyone trying to crack just how to tell that particular story but uh it does sound pretty amazing mm, yeah it's like could they not think of one angle to take to make this interesting <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah this man's life is just too incredible to contain in one movie how are we going to how are we going to fit it all in yeah, um, but I don't know when that's going to drop. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like with a pun that good, like <laughs> surely it's going to be amazing. It's got Connie Nielsen in it as well, Mark Strong, Cher uh, Wiggum, Tom Wilkinson. Um, pretty good cast. Um, very exciting. Oh, also, William Hope from Aliens, who you never see in anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Plays the uh, the asshole Lieutenant Gorman, mm-hmm. um, who I've, I don't think I've ever seen in a film outside of that. So. Yeah, if that that's one reason to see it. Yeah, he's going to have his own reconnaissance. 
It's going to be <laughs> yeah. every, everything by year's end. Okay, let's uh, go on to the next one. A documentary called Robin Williams' Come Inside My Mind. Robin Williams, a much-loved and much-missed uh, comic figure and actor for film and television. Uh, he's, been, he's been dead, I think, four years at this point? Three years? Mm, yeah. Maybe four years. Uh, and uh, so this is going to be a documentary about about him, about his life, about uh, his death. Uh, presumably, is going to filter it, factor into it. Uh, and I think he seems like such a fascinating figure uh, to be explored in a documentary. Yes, and I think I'm very excited about it on the back of seeing the Jim and Andy documentary that mm. came out towards the end of last year, because the process that comedians go through is fascinating with their kind of performances. Everyone thinks you just kind of turn up and be funny, but it's never normally that simple. And someone like Robin Williams, who was famed for always being on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it, the, 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 the film is, is drawn from a lot of archival material and, and like rare footage and stuff. And I assume there's so much of that that we can probably uh, paint a very complex and interesting portrait of someone who is, very complex and interesting who had you know a varied career wasn't you know just a comedic actor was a you know an, an amazing straight actor and kind of uh, decorated um and yeah there's interviews with uh kind of the people who are closest to him so i think it has the potential and sounds uh, like it could be uh, a very revealing emotional and very funny film mm. yeah absolutely next we'll go on to uh, sorry to bother you yes this one is exciting because it stars uh, Lakeith Stanfield, mm-hmm. who appeared to be in every film last year. Yeah, him um, and Tracy Letts were competing <laughs> for who could be in the most movies. Yeah, so I don't really know too much about it, but it sounds a little bit like Office Space, mm-hmm. but w- with a man who is played by Lakeith Stanfield, and he works in an office with Tessa Thompson and Army Hammer, and it's built as a macabre workplace comedy about why you should never underestimate your own powers. Mm. Yeah, Terry Crews is in it as well, who is... Uh, Sold. Always great. It's got an amazing cast. And, yeah, I don't really... Yeah, they seem to be very uh, coy on what the movie is actually about. But, yeah, in, in a lot of cases, you know, you look at a movie's... Uh, the, the talent involved, and that's going to spark your interest. And this is a, an amazing collection of talent who can be very funny or can play it kind of very uh, dramatically. And I like the fact that it's there's apparently some fantasy and sci-fi elements to it as well. So the idea of taking kind of a mundane office situation and then playing it into uh, a sci-fi or a magical realism uh, direction, whatever direction that ends up being, uh, is something I find very fascinating. Mm, it's also got uh, Patton Oswalt, mm-hmm. David Cross, Stephen Yen, Danny Glover. That is a pretty good cast. And IMDb says, in an alternate present day version of Oakland, black telemarketer Cassius Green discovers a magical key to professional success, which propels, propels him into a macabre universe. Mm. I'm instantly sold on this. Was it macabre? <laughs> yeah, it's the word macabre, which is always someone who says that when they're trying to make something sound way more exciting than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm I'm totally into it. I like telemarketers. I like the macabre. So yeah. I, I like magical keys. So uh, consider me uh, in line on opening day. Again, this is another Sundance uh, premiere. So 
fuck knows when we'll see it. It'll probably mm-hmm. be broadcast by Tesco on the projector <laughs> onto the back of a club card, um, you know, at some point in 2026. Yep, and I look forward to talking about it for the next eight years in a row on these... <laughs> these uh, yeah. Yeah. We've got to try and figure out which movie on this uh, list is going to be the one that's just constantly delayed and joins The Great Gatsby and Monuments Men in our club of movies that we keep talking about and then it keeps getting delayed. Yeah, so for kind of regular listeners, they will know that The Great Gatsby was the film that we previewed three years in a row before it finally <laughs> came out. Uh, and Monuments Men is in second place with two years in a row. Yeah. Uh, these kind of long, protracted releases that we, we got very excited about both of those movies. And they both actually turned out to be kind of like really not worth the wait. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed The Great Gatsby. It was a kind of a, a big, uh, splashy spectacle, but... Yeah, Monuments Men was a real damp, damp squib <laughs> to get excited about. We watch it's like, oh, it's this kind of limp wartime drama about painting. Great. Yeah. But with that cast, you know, how did they manage to fuck that up? Yeah, it should, should have been so good, but absolutely was not. Uh, mm. Next up, we have Annihilation, which is the new movie by Alex Garland, who previously directed Ex Machina and who wrote a bunch of... Uh, of, of movies he wrote uh, dread wrote 28 days later a bunch of novels like uh, the beach and the tesseract he is uh someone who whose last film i really really liked i really enjoyed uh, ex machina it was a great dry run for the uh for force awakens for oscar isaac and uh, donald gleason uh totally prepared them for that movie um but uh, this one is a kind of seems of a bigger scale. It's not just three people in a house. It is uh, a group of kind of like scientists investigating a weird energy bubble that has appeared, uh, and you know they walk into it, and then crazy shit happens to them based on the trailer. Yeah, um, it's also hugely notable for the fact that it is going to Netflix in mm. the UK, and it's given the cast, given the budget. And given the fact that it's supposed to be good, it's very, very surprising that it has kind of just been dumped. Yes, the sense that I've got is that the studio who were releasing it, who I think were Paramount, maybe, um, seemed to get cold feet about it. Like, maybe, which means either they watched it and they thought it was bad, or they watched and they thought, this is wildly weird and uncommercial. Uh, mm-hmm. But since the early word and it seems to be pretty positive, it seems like it may be more the second thing. And Netflix, uh, you know, kind of eager beavers that they are, just kind of like jumped up and said, "Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take we'll take weird and uh, likely to generate conversation on Twitter." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you say, Alex Garland, we dread and Ex Machina were that's a, a really good one-two mm. um, that would make you hugely excited for whatever they did next. It seems like they've upped the budget, they've upped the the scope because uh, Ex Machina is very contained. Dread, in its own way, is very contained. Be nice to see a, a little more uh, kind of expansive filmmaking, and it looks like we're going to get that, but not on a big screen. Mm. Certainly not in the UK. So I'm really excited to see it, but again, conflicted about watching it uh, on Netflix. But hey, that's you know that's how it goes these days. Yeah, at least it's getting out there. It'd be. Like a real shame if they, the studio, if this happened like ten years ago, and the studio just decided, ah, no, <laughs> we're just mm. not going to bother. We're just going to leave it on the shelf and then dump it in like seven years' time on like uh, all the girls love Mandy Lane or whatever. All the boys love yeah. Mandy Lane. 
Or that movie with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal where it, that woman gets the nail stuck in her head. Oh, yeah. Uh, nailed, nailed, it was called. And then, but then re-released. Released eventually as Accidentally in Love. Didn't someone famous... David O. Russell. David, did David O. Russell. Uh, uh, written by... Fuck, fuck that then. Written by, uh, <laughs> written by Kristen Gore, daughter of Al Gore, and a staff writer for Futurama at one point. Also wow, wrote okay. the... Uh, also, I believe, wrote Drop Dead Gorgeous. So... It's a shame that her career seems to be completely derailed by getting attached to that movie, which, yeah, just for no... Apparently they needed, like, three or four effect shots done and then they never had the money for it, which is weird. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll move on now to the latest movie by Wes Anderson, Isle of Dogs, returning to the stop-motion realm after an eight-year, nine-year, in fact, absence. The last time he worked with stop-motion was uh, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, which was a, a really quite delightful movie. And mm-hmm. this one is a, an original screenplay about uh, a boy who goes in search of his dog in Japan and the dogs that help him find it, uh, find his dog. And it looks uh, incredibly precious, as yeah. uh, so many of Wes Anderson's movies do. But uh, I really enjoyed what he did with Fantastic Mr. Fox. In, in some ways, it felt like the most Wes Anderson movie because of the level of control mm-hmm. and obsessiveness that the obsessiveness that the form allows him. Uh, and that seems to be on display here, but with a little more of the kind of manic sense of humour that I think uh, was really showcased well in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm, you get the impression with Wes Anderson that he would probably prefer to move his actors one frame at a time by hand mm, yeah. uh, in a meticulous, uh, controlled fashion. Um, interestingly, they played the trailer for this before Paddington 2 the other day in the cinema. Mm. And as soon as the trailer finished, it was in a packed cinema full of kids. I just heard this one kid in the front just say, what the fuck were that? Swear <laughs> <laughs> um, Sheffield children. Exactly. I miss them. But yeah, like it looks kind of amazing in a set in a kind of alternate Japan where all the dogs have been banished to an island because of yeah. disease, I think. Yeah. Um but yeah, it kind of the the voice cast is is crackers. Um um obviously, you know, Bill Murray's in it. Um yeah, the regulars. Uh, the regulars are there, the the rep company uh are there. Um, but, you know, it is a Wes Anderson movie and you always get excited for it. He is a director that has not made a bad film yet. Um, and not only that, all his films are pretty bloody great. Even mm. the ones I don't like, I, yeah, I can accept a great. Um, but yeah, it's we've got this weird occurrence, haven't we? We've got a double Anderson year. We've got a, a Paul Thomas Anderson and a Wes Anderson in the same year. Mm. Yeah, rare, rare occurrence. Last time that like was a super moon. Yeah, last time I think it was 2007. Oh, and 2012. Yeah, Inherent Vice and Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, three years then. We've had it with 2007 with There Will Be Blood and Darjeeling. Yeah. We had it with uh, Grand Budapest Hotel and Inherent Vice. And we had it with The Master and Moonrise Kingdom. Ah, there we go. But Maybe those the, two the, should stop reading over each other's shoulders in class. Yeah, the, the three Anderson year is the rarity when it's PWS Anderson has a movie out. And he has an album out every other week, I think. I'm going to look and see what the hell he's up to. Because it's last... probably probably good to know. Yeah, I think the last time they all had a movie out may have been 2012. I think that was when his Three Musketeers movie came out. He must have a Resident Evil movie out this year. Well, wasn't the last one, quote-unquote, the final chapter? Yeah, it never really is the final chapter. Um, oh, he's doing uh, Death Race 4. 
Okay. Uh, I didn't even know there was a Sounds two or three. Right. Um, but he's also doing a video game adaptation of Monster Hunter. Mm. Oh, he also had a movie out in 2014. He had that version of Pompeii. But, oh, that, um, with Kit Harrington. Yep, which no one remembers. Yeah, apart from me, because I just remembered Kit Harrington was in it. <laughs> but I, I did not see it, so I can't possibly comment. But I'm sure it was brilliant. Yeah, do you think it was better or worse than the song Pompeii? Um, the one that goes, ayo, 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 ayo. That was a big it, hit, like, a year ago. Instantly, your rendition was better than the film. <laughs> uh, I haven't heard the song in, in question, but your rendition oh, was better was, than the film. It was yeah. fucking inescapable over here. I can't even remember who did it. Maybe Imagine Dragons? They seem to do right. everything. Like, I spent every- all of last year trying to escape Despacito, which, when you're in <laughs> South America, is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, whenever I think of Imagine Dragons, I just think of that Nick Cave quote where he said, uh, "Everywhere I go, I say, what the fuck is this?' And it's all what the fuck is this shit?' And it's always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> with me, it's that, but it's always Imagine Dragons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> uh, we were talking about Isle of Dogs. Yes, that looks good. Go and see it; it'll be good. It does look good. I, I'm looking forward to it. Another kind of veteran director returning with a movie that uh, feel, feels like very them uh, in terms of their approach to cinema is uh, Steven Soderbergh, who, after coming back out of retirement last year, quote-unquote retirement, with uh, Logan Lucky, he is back again with Unsane, which is a horror movie that he has directed uh, shot on an iPhone. So he is taking Sean uh, Sean Baker's leave at Sean Baker's lead and uh, trying out the possibilities of shooting things super quick and super cheaply. Mm, and that, this is a new ground for Soderbergh, who famously shot uh, Full Frontal on you know DV cam or whatever, but with an A-list cast of like Julia Roberts and and other people. Yeah, I've, I mean Soderbergh has got a mini series out as well this year. I think. Think amongst other things, so his retirement yeah. is going well, right? Yeah, he's made. He's working on it's some sort of multi-format miniseries where there's going to be a TV component, which I think is airing on HBO, but there's also going to be an app, and like the app is part of the storytelling. You have to go on the app to see parts of the story revealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it sounds very like Dave, like uh, Steven Soderbergh of just being like, how can I? annoy people the most in my storytelling decisions. I mean, I love Steven Soderbergh. I think he's, he's a incredibly creative, an incredible creative force, but sometimes you look at it and think, you're trying a bit too much to uh, yeah. shake up the paradigm. They'll probably release a film that's, you know, like one of those uh, Flash games on Facebook you have to invite <laughs> all your friends to, like Farmville, and then, you know, it's the only way you can get your stuff out of there. But did you see his, his list that he released uh, yes. this week? Where he, yeah. Every year he releases on his website a obsessive list of everything he's watched in the year, whether it's TV, film, whatever, all the books he's read, all the plays he's read, everything. And it's always incredibly revealing, but I was most excited to see that he'd watched 48 hours six times. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I, was, I was excited to see that he apparently had watched all of the thick of it. Which yeah. feels very much like, uh, you know, idle genius or guy who has spent a lot of time working on his own projects and just really wants to unwind watching Peter Capaldi scream at people. Mm. Well, maybe this is why he's coming out of retirement and he published that list. He was like, I was so fucking bored. I watched 48 hours six times. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, do, uh, do you think he's somehow involved with the Safdie Brothers remake that's currently in the works? Oof. 
Maybe. Or do you think he's just going to uh, re? He's going to do one of his patented re-edits of forty-eight hours, and it's going to be shot or just uh, edited like Memento or something? Mm, yeah, soundlessly in reverse. But he did say that the, one of the key things he's watched a new The Ocean's Eight movie. He's watched it nine times. Yes, because he's was... a producer on it. So I guess he kind of offers uh, offers his thoughts on it. But yeah, yeah. so he must mm. like it. Or he yeah. just hate it and have lots of thoughts. Yeah, he just wanted to make sure on the eighth time he was picking up all the nuance that uh, mm. James Corden delivers. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's jump to Ocean Eight. Ocean's Eight. Then uh, I am. Um, I mean, I'm trepidatious about it because of the aforementioned Corden, mm-hmm. who is always a reason to be wary, and because it's uh, I believe Gary Ross, who is not a bad director, but he is just kind of like a journeyman verging on a hack. You know, mm-hmm. just the sort of guy who you just hire, doesn't do spectacular work, and that, I think, is uh, shown off in the trailer, which doesn't have a huge amount of visual pop to it. He's but... a thinking man's Taylor Hackford. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's a great cast. I like the idea of of assembling that particular selection of characters and, and actresses to play them. I like the fact that it's tied into the original series but kind of off to the side a little bit uh, that somehow George Clooney's character has died and that's going to play into it so it's it kind of feel it's, it's in they're making interesting choices I think in terms of like trying to keep it part of this broader series that people like uh, and you know I, I really enjoy Sandra Bullock I love Kate Blanchett Mindy Kaling uh Brianna is someone who I don't think has been particularly well used in movies so far, mm. but is like certainly hugely charismatic. So it's kind of hard. Like, there's a reason why she's cast in Valerian as like the most desirable pop star in the universe. Like, it's pretty much her. Basically, she is someone who you think with the right role she could do something really great. Yeah, and it's just a, a really cool assemblage of people. Sarah Polly, uh, not Sarah Polly, uh, Sarah Paulson. Yeah, it's just like a great selection of actresses or being, hopefully being given a chance to shine in what could be, hopefully, a very fun, likeable uh, heist movie. Yeah, because let's not forget that the first Ocean's Eleven is a very fun knockabout heist, because the original Ocean's Eleven with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and all those guys is really kind of intolerable. Look at mm. me and how my friends are having a good dicking about. Yeah, um, which is the, Yeah, and it's like nearly three hours long. It's, it's really long. It's a real grind to get through. Um, but the it, it's very much it's it's very much uh, built on the premise of you like the Rat Pack, wouldn't you like to spend an after like a whole day hanging out with them, pretty much? And then you're like, no, <laughs> like, yeah, I, it's it's the nineties. I don't like any of these people anymore. Yeah, but the uh, the the remake was really fun because they kind of got a bunch of guys who like hanging out together, had good chemistry, mm-hmm. and put a proper director in charge. And made a good film, and then they made two more films to diminishing returns, um, which I didn't enjoy at all. Um, but um, yeah, this has got. If, if they keep it light, keep it breezy, and yeah, we give uh, Gary Ross some shit. But he did. He did direct Pleasantville, which is a good movie. That's a um, very good movie. That's a good movie. And yeah. I've always got a soft spot for him because uh, my wife uh, taught English at like GCSE, and they did the Hunger Games, uh, and. Mm-hmm. 
the people who made the Hunger Games, whatever the studio was, had like an education pack they sent out to schools with like some clips from the film and copies of the book. And like one of the things in the education pack was like a 20 minute video of Gary Ross talking about literature. And he, that guy knows his literature and he was like mm. hugely inspirational in that. So I'll give him, uh, I'll give him uh, some props for that. But you know, he is a journeyman. Let's not be yeah. around the bush. Yeah. Like, he probably uh, would have replaced Ron Howard if Ron Howard got fired on Han Solo. <laughs> Yeah, when, when Ron Howard is too adventurous, you're going to go with us. <laughs> yeah. We'll go on to what could be the biggest film of the year if uh, Solo flares out. Certainly it's the one that feels the biggest in terms of the culmination of an era of filmmaking in Hollywood. Hollywood. Uh, it is Marvel's The Avengers Infinity War, which mm. uh, brings together all your favourites and presumably uh, is a complete mess. <laughs> um, I... Uh, always great like we've doubted marvel on this exact point on several occasions but like the level of difficulty of trying to make a a sensical narrative out of a movie with 87 discrete characters or however many were up to at this point seems very very high and very difficult yeah it's gonna be tough to not only give people like uh screen time that is that doesn't feel like they're just cameos, but also to manage a story that genuinely needs that amount of people in it. Mm. Yes, and to present Thanos as enough of a threat that you need everyone to be involved. Which had they like in the previous movies, they've only really hinted at it, and his appearance in the trailer after all that build-up, you know, him just kind of like flashing into existence and walking around and looking kind of like he should be in Smash Mouth doesn't really engender a sense of menace and, and it does wonder if this will be the point at which marvel's villain problem becomes you know fatal and because mm. the, the 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 first avengers movie worked really well because you had loki who was you know tom middle uh tom hiddleston not tom middle ditch uh, <laughs> that would be very would be a very interesting choice for loki yeah it was everyone who's like i can tell you're lying why because you're twitching and bleeding from the eyes. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, like Tom Hiddleston, you know, hugely charismatic villain and, and really fun to watch. The second one, less successful, but James Spader did a really good voice performance as Ultron. So, you know, he, he presented an interesting villain. And those are kind of the, the threats that they pr- present is kind of the key part to making you think, okay, now everyone needs to band together. And also you wonder if it's going to just reach the... If there's going to be a, a diminishing returns from the Avengers being like, okay, we have to come together and work as a team again for the third or fourth time in the row of, really like re- of realising they need to put their differences aside and, and fight this new threat. Because, yeah, I mean, there's only so many times that you can do that particular narrative trick. Mm, yeah. And, you know, how much more desperate are things because we know that he's not going to just like Thanos isn't going to destroy the world mm. um but because like, there's another Marvel movie out two months later <laughs> yeah so and also there's a second part to Infinity War is that right I think that was the plan but I'm not sure if that still is I, I think the next one is maybe going to just be called Avengers 4 maybe right okay yeah well the trailer certainly looks fun 
um, if we can if it can find room to breathe because not only like Avengers was like okay Hulk Captain America Thor Black Widow everyone's in it the gang's all here mm-hmm. this one is all those guys plus all the secondary characters from those films you know like Benedict Wong's in it from uh, Doctor Strange and yeah. Sebastian Stan is it did you see this week that someone's listed Sebastian Stan on IMDb and Wikipedia as Mark Hamill's actual son <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed the uncanny resemblance between those two people, um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I saw, saw some internet wag had done that. But yes, there's 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 a lot of secondary characters in there, and and yeah, it could be a mess, could be uh, you know a hugely fun crowning achievement to uh, what's going to be a big year for Marvel because they've also got Ant Man and the Wasp coming out. Yeah, let's uh, briefly touch on that. I'm quite excited for it. I really enjoyed the first Ant Man. Uh, I thought that Peyton Reed did a really good job under adverse circumstances of having to be brought on after Edgar Wright was uh, unceremoniously let go from the project, uh, mm-hmm. not long before they were due to start filming. And he made good on the promises of the both the comedic and the weirdly cosmic promise of Ant-Man's abilities, like the part towards the end where it briefly becomes like 2001 when he shrinks down to the subatomic level. Mm-hmm. Uh, is pretty cool from a visual point of view uh, and obviously there's that great visual gag of uh, him and uh, Corey Stoll fighting on the toy train set and then the cut back to the toy train falling over in yeah. a really pathetic way um, so I think there's a lot of stuff there that is very promising uh, and and I like uh, and you know he did a good job with that one and I like the idea of them coming back now without the baggage of all of that and able to tell a story that can be separated from production woes and maybe with him having kind of a freer hand with it because he's a director who, you know, you look at things like Bring It On or Down With Love. He's someone who has a, a real keen visual sense and he's he's very kinetic and he seems like he'd be a good uh, choice to direct uh, superhero movies as, as he has proven to be uh, with the first one. Mm, and Paul Rudd and... Uh, oh God, I Evangeline it. Lilly? Yeah, that's right. I was going to call her Lily Evangeline, which is wrong, unless I was calling her name in register or something. Um, <laughs> they actually had some good chemistry, mm. uh, which was quite nice. Um, so and she I gets like, the suit up this time as well, which is does. nice after promising it at the end of the last one. And I hope that Michael, du- like Michael Douglas is still in it because I, you know, liked seeing him in the Marvel Universe. Uh, less so mm. with the kind of digitally young face. That was kind of creepy, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I thought he was a good addition, and, and he's, he sparked off Paul Rudd very nicely. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think there's a, and there's a lot of potential for, like, say, hit the nature of his power means that there's lots of kind of fun things you can do with that. That's why he was so perfectly suited to their attempt at kind of doing a, a superhero heist movie, which he more or less kind of pulled off the idea of... of him being able to shrink down into small spaces and, and kind of get into locations that other people can't do. I think hopefully they'll try and keep it a little more small scale like that and give Michael Pena more fun things to do because they also had like a really cool supporting cast as well, which was nice. Um, I wouldn't, I do worry that if it becomes too big, uh, pun intended, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, that it loses that sense of specificity. Like the thing that was nice about it was it was that it was quite a small focused movie. It stood in nice contrast to Civil War. Was that what came out that year? No, to uh, Age of Ultron, which came out that year, which was so yeah. kind of bigger bombastic. Um, 
it was a nice contrast. So if they could keep this one focused to kind of offset the even greater bombast of of uh, Infinity War, uh, that could be something. Hopefully, yes, yes, um, and. I hope it continues the trend we've seen recently of the smaller Marvel movies being a bit more offbeat. Mm. Yes, yes, hopefully. Mm. So we've got a new Cloverfield movie coming this year. Uh, we're not sure when. It was meant to come out in February. I think it's being pushed back until April or May. We don't even know what it's called. It was called God Particle at one point, but I'm sure that's that may still be up in the air. But uh, I'm very excited for it. I was really pleasantly surprised by 10... By Ten Cloverfield Lane, which was a you know a hugely exciting thriller and really tight and taut and well directed. This is obviously by different people. This one is directed by someone called Julius Owner, which uh, who I don't believe has directed much previously, much in terms of uh, feature work. But I like the idea of the Cloverfield series being this strange anthology series where. You get in young directors who are kind of hungry for a taste, a cracker, a kind of a mid-budget movie, and they get to do some basically original sci-fi movies that all have the kind of like the Cloverfield branding on it. And it's got mm. a cool cast. It's got Elizabeth Debicki, who I enjoy a great deal in most things. Uh, Daniel Bruhl, again, great actor. Uh, Gugu Mbathe-Raw, Chris O'Dowd, uh, David Oyelowo. Uh, a lot of really, really great people. Ji Zhang. Wow. This is actually a really, really great cast in that first, like, seven people. They're all people I really, really like. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, it's all about, like, a scientific experiment breaking out on a space station, which, for me, is certainly something I enjoy. I enjoy movies about people trapped in uh, in enclosed spaces and things going wrong. That's always uh, a great kind of pressure cooker for drama. Mm. So we know little about it. We know it's going to be a kind of a mystery box type thing because it's Cloverfieldy. Um, we know it was called the God Particle. Hear me out here, Ed. What if it's mm-hmm. about a man who travels through time mm. to stop someone eating a sandwich, and it's called the Rod Particle? <laughs> I took it full circle, Ed. Yeah, what a great callback. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally, the world is ready for Teen Angel references. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If someone's going to do it, then, you know, J.J. Abrams is engineered this situation really elaborately to make a secretive follow-up to Teen Angel. Yeah. Uh, or to take it into a shot-reverse-shot law, maybe it's just a movie about Walter Murch. Just Quite kind of possibly. Like hanging around at CERN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For just, just to keep himself interested. <laughs> yeah, he's just so, he's so bored with the plebeian demands of being the greatest editor <laughs> in the history of the medium, except for maybe Thelma Shoemaker. Uh, that he just decides to waltz off to Switzerland for a bit. Yeah, yeah, hang about there. I'm so bored with this. I'm going to try particle physics <laughs> just for a just for a lark. Mm, yeah, yeah. The uh, very different from Walter Murch, considering particle physics. Uh, we have The Incredibles two, which is, I believe, the only Pixar movie of the year. After a couple of years where we've had uh, two Pixar movies. Uh, per year, usually one of them the kind of junior partner of the two, quality wise. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm torn on it. Like, I love The Incredibles. I love Brad Bird in general. I think he's a great filmmaker. He his work in animation is pretty much spotless at this point. Mm-hmm. And The Incredibles is a great kind of standalone movie, which hints at the possibility of a broader world. But like, I guess like Star Wars, like the idea of dipping back into that well too often runs the risk of spoiling it 
and uh, I'm, I'm, I am simultaneously very excited to return to that world and fully prepared for it to not live up to my hopes of, you know, 14 years worth of thinking about what could happen in a sequel to The Incredibles. Yeah, I mean, it, you can file it under the unnecessary uh, tab in the mm-hmm. cabinet, but hopefully it'll be, you know, at worst, the uh, the kind of Finding Dory type thing, is in it'll be really kind of fun to watch, but, you know, we didn't need it. Uh, Monsters University, I'm less warm on. Uh, another unnecessary sequel that Pixar did. But, you know, Pixar also did Toy Story 2 and 3, and they turned out mm. pretty well, but they were a little bit more, you know, straight after the other films had come out, rather than, mm. like you say, 14 years. So you know, it's it's a long time to wait. And, yeah, I love The Incredibles too. Uh, whether I love The Incredibles 2 mm. is something uh, quite different. Um I'm just kind of interested to see where they'll go with the story and why it's taken them so long to come up with one. Mm, and also, this this is uh, always interesting when Pixar have to return to an older movie and they have to try and recreate the look of older technology because it would look weird if they made it and it suddenly all looked like photorealistic, mm-hmm. but without making it too different. And I think people pointed out that in the trailer you can see like the threads on Bob Parr's shirt are like all individually animated now and it's not just kind of a flat texture. Mm-hmm. I think like that's that to me from an animation point of view is really fascinating of the balance of like we have such a more powerful tool set now than we did in 2004 and we can't really use it because everyone will be like why do these characters all look really weird and different? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a trailer. We don't really know much about the story or <laughs> the cast, I guess. Um, so we can't really say too much about it other than it's happening. Mm, and it's been yeah. they've been talking about it for such a long time that it's finally actually happening. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I do like, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about Solo not having a trailer and wondering if that's kind of uh, worrying. I do, I do like Pixar have kind of stuck to this... Uh, trend of releasing trailers that don't really tell you anything about the story. They just basically say, hey, this is a thing that's happening. Here are these characters doing stuff. Uh, and this one was uh, one of the more fun of Jack-Jack, the baby, uh, playing around with all the crazy powers he's developed uh, that we saw him using at the end of the first movie to absolutely murder Jason Lee's character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. One of the... Possibly one of the big awards contenders, certainly based on the director's past couple of movies is First Man, which is the movie about uh, Neil Armstrong, directed by Damien Chazelle, and I believe starring Ryan Gosling as uh, as Neil Armstrong himself. Yeah, so um, we very much enjoyed Whiplash. You mm. and several other people were burned by La La Land. I still have not seen it. Um, so... I mean, La La Land obviously did very well, critically, but there was... It was a huge box office success. Like, yeah. crazy big. But it was also... I, he'll be aware that some people weren't quite as enamoured with it as mm. as others. Um, it seems like a very boring choice of Oscar bait to me. Mm. To make a film about, a, you know... I mean, like, we've had The Right Stuff. That's a great book and great movie about the early days of, of, like, space aviation. To do a film about the first man on the moon seems 
a bit tired and a bit kind of... I mean, there might be a really interesting angle to take, but, mm. like, it's not like he's not a famous person. He's, like, the most... Literally the most famous person on the moon. Yeah, yeah, so... But, yeah, I guess I'm 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 definitely excited about it because I do like him as a director. Like, even though... As a as a musical, certainly I don't like La La Land. I think it's it's a well shot movie, and he did a really good job directing it. Um, this feels like it'd be interesting to see if he can inject something, some light and excitement into a story that you know in the hands of a, a Ron Howard or a Gary Ross uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> could could be kind of like really staid and and boring. Um, you know, it, can he do something with it that feels kind of new and exciting and can kind of invigorate an entire, basically a subgenre that were anyone else directing this movie, you would think you would roll your eyes instantly and think, oh, okay, guess we're doing this now. Guess we're talking yeah. about Neil Armstrong again. Uh, 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 but also what's interesting as well is uh, he. this is his first feature that he hasn't written. He's uh, He's working from a previous screenplay. Which you know again also made you wonder if it's going to feel different because I do, like Whiplash was a was a really uh, exhilarating movie and how it was assembled and edited and everything and the script had some kind of structural problems and and occasional kind of weird lapses in dialogue uh, and and the problem with La La Land was basically the story which was mm-hmm. that it was kind of really generic and and not terribly interesting. Whereas, uh, so it makes you wonder what could happen if he unleashes his full powers as a visual storyteller on without having to be distracted by, you know, his maybe more limited capacity as a writer. Mm, yeah. Who else is in it? Sorry, apart from Ryan Gosling. Uh, we've got Claire Foy of The Crown fame, who is uh, really showing up in a lot of things uh, currently. Uh, we've got John Bernthal, uh Pablo mm. Schreiber, Jason Clark, Carl Chandler... Corey Stoll, Lucas Haas, uh, Patrick Fugit, uh, continuing to crop up in occasional movies mm-hmm. after after Gone Girl. So yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of like really good, uh, kind of solid, dependable character actors uh, further down the line. Yeah, it could be solid. It, it, at the minute, it's not boiling my onions, Ed. It's mm. it's it's it sounds uh, fairly pedestrian. I really hope that there's, uh, a kind of more interesting approach taken to it. And it surprises me. Mm. A movie that, uh, kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about, it's kind of like the opposite of that. I mean, that I'm excited about it in principle, but what I've seen of it hasn't really excited me so far is golden exits, which is the new movie by Alex Ross Perry, mm. who previously directed, uh, a Queen of Earth, which was a, a really good movie. Uh, Listen Up Philip, which is a terrific movie. This is uh, a movie about an Australian girl played by uh, Emily Browning. I was going to say Christine Browning for some reason. Emily Browning, uh, who kind of like comes over to New York to intern for uh, a writer who is played by Ad Rock of the Beastie Boys uh, right. in a in a dramatic role uh, that seems to be a lot bigger than like the smaller roles he had in things like while we're young like he seems to be a fairly significant character on here and and so she kind of enters into this small cliquey world of all the gossip that surrounds her you know people like mary louise parker and chloe savigny uh and you know she kind of seems to develop some sort of a friendship with jason schwartzman you know a uh an alex ross perry regular so there's lots of ingredients there that that sound like it could be really good the trailer makes it look a little bit like Woody Allen in Bergman mode, which is not 
my favourite kind of uh, Woody Allen, uh, and certainly isn't something that I would like to see Alex Ross Perry impersonate because I think he's a much more interesting filmmaker than that. And but I, I can't feel I can't bring myself to to write it off because he's he's done two movies that I thought were were really terrific, and you know he's got an amazing uh, cast of people there, which. Uh, used well and with a if the story is perhaps more interesting than the vaguely philip rothy uh setup suggests could be could be a really good movie did he do the one i forget the name of it I, I, uh, was it called nice try jonathan or was it what's it called with J- jason schwartzman listen up philip yeah listen up philip nice try, nice try jonathan it's great I think that's a great title for for the, for the follow up. Um, uh, Richard yeah. Linklater has a movie out this year called uh, "Where Did You Go, Bernadette," which isn't that far away from <laughs> "Nice Try, Jonathan" in terms so, of yeah, title. So that, it actually follows on. It's like "Listen Up, Philip," "Nice Try, Jonathan," <laughs> and what was the other one? Something, "Where Did You Go, Bernadette?" Where Did You Go, Bernadette? I mean, that's that, that's a triumvirate that needs to be seen back to back in the same cinema on the same evening. Yeah, we've got we've got a potential trilogy. You and I just need to write and direct. Nice try, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, we're missing a piece. Um, yeah, a crucial a crucial part of this plan yeah. needs to go into effect, and yeah, it involves but, a mid mid budget indie movie being made. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty busy this year, but I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure we can knock something out. Um, yeah, that guy's films always interesting. Both uh, those the two he's done previously, both very. Um, different tonally, um, and yeah, someone who seems to know what he's doing. Um, so anything that comes out uh, from him will be definitely worth seeing. Mm. Is it a Sundancey? I imagine it would be, wouldn't it? Yes, I think it has already played at a few festivals last year. Maybe played at Toronto. Okay, I remember seeing people talking about it and it getting kind of generally pretty strong responses from people. Certainly from the kind of people who like his work in general. So. Hopefully, uh, it'll be coming out some point this year. Maybe it will show up on like Amazon or something. Mm-hmm. It feels like the sort of movie that would that would play well on uh, on their services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another director who has directed two absolutely fantastic movies prior to uh, this current upcoming one is Lean on Pete, which is the new movie by Andrew Hay, who previously directed Forty Five Years, uh, kind of devastating. Uh, movie from a couple of years ago at this point, mm. and Weekend, one of the uh, one of the great movies of this century. I think I go so far as to say one of the, the certainly, one, certainly one of the great British movies of the of the current uh, still young century. This movie is a nice horse movie. It's a movie about a young man played by Charlie Plummer who uh, is uh, hired by Steve Buscemi to help him look after this racehorse called Lean on Pete, and you know he becomes. Uh, you know, he, he becomes very uh, affectionate towards the horse, you know, like, because he, he admires this kind of great creature and then he hates seeing the abuse that it suffers as a result of being a racehorse. You know, it's not a great life for a horse. So he ends up stealing the horse and kind of, like, driving across America. And, uh, again, it's also got Chloe Sevigny in it, who was uh, also previously mentioned for being in Golden Exits. And... Uh, I really like this because it seems to be operating in a very different mode to uh, Andrew Hayes' previous two movies. You know, it's very much, it feels like a kind of a real Americana style movie. His previous two movies, obviously, very, very British, very mm-hmm. reserved. Um, 
well, Weekend's not... One of the characters in Weekend is very reserved. But um, yeah. but I, I like the fact that he's taking his... Uh, and I guess he made uh, Looking, but, like, I don't know how involved he was in that. But, uh, you know, this, this is in a very different milieu to what he's worked in before. Uh, and I just... I just really like... I, I am a sucker for any kind of, like road cross-country road movie set in america because it's such a a vast and mythical place in general and you know the idea of a a young boy just being like you know going on the road stealing a horse and then trying to survive uh sounds like a story that is kind of rife with possibilities Mm, it sounds very similar to something that andrew arnold did like i've made very british stories um previously then going to do a big road movie in Mm. america with american honey um it's always nice to because like you say america is a very mythical place and and that kind of idea of the open road and the the wide expanses of of rolling american kind of country are so mythical that it's really interesting to see it from an outsider's like viewpoint um Mm. and especially when they're british and britain is such a small country which fits inside one of the great lakes uh, in terms of scale, that it's going to be really interesting to see what he does with it. And like you say, he is two for two currently, with Weekend being amazing and 45 years being e- equally as amazing. Um, mm. And um, yeah, so that will be a fascinating one to see. Also, any film where someone steals a horse, uh, what could go wrong? Mm. And they're not trying to blind it like Equus. Yeah, 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 do not, yeah, that's the that's bad use of horse. And also tra- train spying is terrible use of horse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another British director making an American movie, uh, a director who's been away for quite some time uh, and who uh, I think forms an important kind of bedrock of this show's early years, mm-hmm. was uh, is Lynn Ramsey, who is back with uh, You Were Never Really Here, which is her new thriller with... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a hitman who is hired to track down a young girl who's been kidnapped, and uh, then things go awry. Uh, I can't really say much more than that, because I think going beyond that is uh, kind of spoilery. It's based on a Jonathan Ames short story, which suggests that it's probably very different to the stuff he usually writes, because I always think of him from, you know, bored to death, which isn't isn't nearly as intense as this movie looks. Um, It's uh, got that kind of bleakness that i think we're used to from seeing uh from from lynn ramsey's movies there certainly seems to be like a real toughness to it uh joaquin phoenix's performance has been getting great acclaim from uh from people who saw it at Cannes last year uh, and i'm very excited about it i know that you and i back in the early days of the show had a, a very strong disagreement about the merits of uh we need to talk about kevin which was her last movie mm-hmm. but uh this one feels like it could be really good. And even, you know, if she, she's a filmmaker who makes films so infrequently and her movies are always interesting that even if this movie doesn't turn out to be great, which I, I hope it will, um, I'm still interested to see what she does considering, yeah, she's not made a movie in seven years. Yeah, and it's a big uh, comeback because obviously she was attached for a, a long time to that film that no one wanted to direct. The oh, yeah. Annie, Annie Get Your Gun, was it? No, what was it called? It, it was, it was An- Annie, Annie Get Your Gun, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> nice try, Annie. It, I think it was Annie, Annie Got a Gun. 
Angus and he got a gun, yeah. And she was she direct, did she leave it after it started shooting? Yes, I think they had been shooting for like a week. Yeah, uh, and then she just didn't show up for work, and then they fired her. Yeah, so I forgot about that whole drama because they did rotate several directors and several cast members whilst they were still in production. Yeah, because you and McGregor replaced Jude Law. Mm-hmm. I think Fassbender then... was replaced or did replace someone. Yeah, Nick Portman was the only Natalie Portman's like the only cast member from because it was a, a vehicle built around her. Yeah, like she was the only original cast member who remained. It ended up being. Gareth O'Connor, I think, the guy who did Warrior, ended up directing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Gary yeah. Ross wasn't available. <laughs> yeah, the slightly more expensive Gary Ross. Yeah. But yeah, like so we've talked before about how uh, mediocre white directors seem to get a million chances. So it's all it's nice to see Lynn Ramsey uh, not being discarded, uh, when she quite easily could have... Um, found it harder to work when you get fired from a movie. Um, Especially because she'd had, that was like her second project falling apart in pretty much in a row because she'd had the lovely bones stolen from her effectively by Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, yeah, she's a pretty good director. Whilst you're correct, I really did not like, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. You know, there's no arguing that it's a well-made film. Um, mm. You know, it's just whether you go for it or not. Um, whether you like quite that much red in your movie, <laughs> yeah. Um, and there seems to be a lot of red in this movie. According to, I've seen one still from this movie, and a lot of red seems to be on Joaquin Phoenix's face. Mm-hmm. So yes, uh, uh, and the seems... trailer features him, him and a hammer and several people's heads. So I think it's going to be a tough one. Right. Okay. So we're getting into kind of kill list territory. Mm. Um, straight off the bat. So yes, I'm excited to see it. Um, always like a comeback. Um, and yeah, Ratcatcher, Morven Caller, great movies. So yeah, excited to see what uh, uh, Lynn Ramsey does next. Mm. A another female director who had kind of a, a big hit a few years ago, and has kind of been away for a little bit, and is, is back hopefully in a big way. Is Jennifer Kent, who previously directed The Babadook. Mm. A, a gay icon, the Babadook, yep. who uh, she's back with a movie called The Nightingale, which I don't think is going to uh, prompt any fantastic memes. But who knows? Like, I don't think anyone quite saw the uh, the Babadook <laughs> becoming uh, accepted so completely by the gay community as it ended up being. Uh, it's a movie set in Tasmania in 1825 about a young convict seeking revenge for the murder of her family uh, through the with the help of an Aboriginal male. And it sounds certainly, you know, I like a good revenge movie. Uh, and I am fascinated by stories about Australia, particularly its kind of frontier days. You know, the, the proposition is one of my favorite movies. And uh, it's a world I would, I always like to see explored. I, I basically like to see how we fucked up other countries around the world. Uh, and it's such a, it's a, a landscape that offers such great possibilities for kind of brutally effective storytelling uh, and Jennifer Kent is someone who I am really really excited to see do something like that especially since her direction after doing the Babadook wasn't to go like okay go to Hollywood and make Miss Marvel which I believe she was uh, Captain Marvel sorry which I think she was under consideration for some fault but instead to stay in Australia and make a movie that feels like something that she's more she kind of cares about as opposed to being like 
okay, I made that like one low budget personal movie. I'm going to go and just make kind of big budget stuff for the rest of my life. Hmm. Yeah, I always like it when people do that. They kind of keep it a little bit more focused and and intimate and keep making interesting work. I'd kind of prefer that than they kind of just sell out and make less interesting films Mm. ad nauseum. Um, But yes, I'm very interested to see that. Uh, Do we know who's in it? Lots of Australian actors who I have never heard of. So I'm going to guess that a lot of them probably... Oh, Sam Claflin, who is... uh... Uh, a British actor who was in uh, Death Games. Finest Hour. Hmm? Was he in The Hunger Games? Was he yes, the, he was in The Hunger Games, yes. Yes, that's right. And uh, Ailing Frankiosi, who I think is in... Who looks like... Oh, she was uh, Lyanna Stark in several episodes of Game of Thrones. Spoiler, I guess. Because mm-hmm. uh, in Flashback, and was also in The Fall. So there's a few people who are... The Fall as of, in uh, the bass player in the band The Fall, because we've all been bass player in the band The Fall before. <laughs> Uh, yes, no, she was uh, in the fall, the serial killer TV show with Gillian Anderson. Yes, with you. That's more, way more likely than being in the band The Fall. Yeah, she was in the Camus novel, The Fall. <laughs> so, so like, young, young actors, not kind of big names, which is uh, always exciting. You know, it's not something that's being kind of swamped with star power. Uh, and obviously, you know, a director who I'm... Uh, whose first film I really, really loved, and I really hope to see her kind of continue making small, intense movies on the other side of the world. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, keep at it. Uh, Very much of a different scale. Uh, The Predator, the latest update of the Predator series, directed by Shane Black and improbably starring Jacob Tremblay. Yes. I mean, all I've seen is the the cast picture that mm-hmm. is uh, um, that was tweeted by uh, Mr. Black of uh, of the cast. We, we, they look very menacing, but then there is a small child at the front there. I think my appetite for Predator movies has waned somewhat since seeing mm. most of the Predator movies. Um, I mean, obviously Predator is great, but uh, and Predator Two has got some cool stuff in it, some cool stuff in it. But then, obviously, we had Alien versus Predator movies, and then that fucking awful Robert Rodriguez one mm. um, from a few years ago which starts in the best fashion possible which just opens on guys waking up as they've been pushed out of a plane and <laughs> to realise that they have to open their parachutes to land but then ends in you know it takes the Predator who is a great kind of alien design and you know um, uh, when performed correctly is a very menacing physical presence but just felt like stuntmen running around in suits uh, mm. by the end of that movie and it was very lacklustre and made me think that I I really don't need to see another Predator movie again mm. but then Mr. Black has a good uh, you know he has certainly like a good CV since he's kind of come back into the fold from Kiss uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang onwards um, he's done some interesting work um, he obviously has a connection to the material because he was in he the was in one. it yep whether they'll shoehorn some jokes uh, into it uh, will be kind of it'll probably be set at Christmas, <laughs> knowing that Shane Black is involved. Um, so yeah, I mean, if the, I mean this is its last, this is last chance saloon, is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. They really need to pull something out of the bag that makes it more interesting, other than just a bunch of dudes with guns get lost in a jungle and are picked off one by one by a giant alien with dreadlocks. Mm, but what dudes though? Because we've got Sterling K. Brown, Keegan yeah. Michael Key, uh, Travante Rhodes. Uh, Edward James Olmos is in there somewhere. Uh, Olivia, Alfie... Olivia Munn is in it as well, I think. Yep, yeah, so it, there's definitely, like, it's got good people. 
mm. uh, involved. That's not always a recipe for a good idea, for a good film if the idea is not solid. But uh, I have enough faith in Shane Black to think that this is going to turn out all right at least. But yeah, like you say, it's not like the uh, the Predator series is kind of like an illustrious history. It's basically one incredible kind of genre-defining movie and then everyone failing to make a, a decent version of that again. Yeah, and, you know, we talked earlier about the Han Solo. That film, Predator, survived some ridiculously changing playing field type goalposts being shifted as they were making the movie with mm-hmm. the alien being completely redesigned the actor playing him john claude van damme being fired and replaced by someone else um and the whole third act of the movie being completely reshifted mm-hmm. um you know and that like you say turned out to be not a film that i thought we'd talk about as being genre defining when i first saw it as a teenager but you know it has endured mm-hmm. um and for good reason um so yes to see a kind of uh update on it would be nice i'd like to see some new things in there um and you know if anyone could do it shane black can do it he's got a good sensibility and also is not unafraid to puncture the pomposity of of such things mm. um with with humor do you think it's going to turn out that the predator is just ben kingsley pretending <laughs> to be the predator yes that would be um an excellent reveal, a kind of like a cockney alcoholic uh, Ben Kingsley who insists on being called Sir. Mm-hmm. My hope is that either Jacob, either Jacob Tremblay kills the Predator or actually is the Predator and they've been uh, keeping it a secret for the whole time. He's just going to be like a little baby one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd watch it. Next up, we have the latest movie by Lenny Abramson who most recently directed Room, previously directed movies like... Oh, no, he directed... Um, did you direct Frank before Room? Was I forget the Frank order. was before Room, I think. Okay, yeah, you directed Frank, you directed Room, which was like a big uh, critical success, got a bunch of nominations to the Oscar, including uh, nominations at the Oscars, including a win for Brie Larson, mm-hmm. and a bunch of movies in Ireland. What Richard did, I think, was yes, one of his. that was like the big one that people really Early played to. Yeah, uh, he's directing a movie called The Little Stranger, which is uh, adapting a Sarah Waters book. Sarah Waters obviously wrote things like The Night Watch, uh, the the book that became The Handmaiden, but I can't remember. Fingersmith, that was it. Fingersmith was mm. the name of the novel. So a uh, writer of great uh, Victorian-era fiction. Uh, also, uh, and this is kind of like a vaguely supernatural horror movie. So I'm very, very excited about it because all of those <laughs> ingredients are things I really, really like. Uh, I've yet to see a Sarah uh, Waters adaptation that I haven't liked. Uh, and obviously Lenny Abramson is a really talented and exciting young-ish director. I think he's probably in his 40s, but he has only kind of really burst onto the scene in the last 10 years or so. So uh, I'm very excited about that combination. Yes, it does seem like a good match. Um, and it's difficult for someone who's spent time in smaller films to suddenly get a huge bit of attention critically. Like, I think he got an Oscar nominated for Room, I think. Mm. Um, and then to follow that up with something that isn't, you know, it's very easy to go down the Tom Hooper route, do you know what I mean? And just make yes. boring things. So I just, you know, it'd be nice to see him not do that. And I really hope that this is it. But he's chosen good material. Should be interesting. Yeah, and he has... Certainly, if the top four in the cast are anything to go by, he has quite a pool of talent to draw from. He's got Donald Gleeson, the uh, 
unavoidable, inescapable Donald Gleeson, Ruth mm-hmm. Wilson, uh, Will Poulter, and Charlotte Rampling. All Good of cast. them know what they're doing. They so do. I'm very, very excited to see how that one turns out. Kind of the last kind of major movie we'll talk about in detail is Mission Impossible 6, which I am excited for because I really like the Mission Impossible movies. Uh, even the second one has its, its kind of gonzo charms. No, it um, doesn't, Ed. Stop saying it. <laughs> Don't that make, Meta- stop trying to make Mission Impossible 2 happen. That, Mich- that, that Metallica song is good. I Disappear. It's a pretty good mm, one. Yeah. Um, Wasn't uh, Mission Impossible 2 the one with the Limp Biscuit song? Yes, it was. Oh, yeah. that, that does weigh pretty heavily against it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely a strike. Yep. Um, but uh, it's the, the, since, apart from that one kind of stumble, uh, it's been pretty consistent as one of the most entertaining big blockbuster series running um Mm -hmm. now in its 22nd year um the director this time is krista mcquarrie who previously directed rogue nation this is the first time that they've reused the director usually it's a different director each time so that's that's interesting although i do i would kind of like it if they brought in someone new just because that's how the series has functioned up to this point and it was exciting seeing like Brad Bird get to direct a movie like that but at the same time Rogue Nation was like really terrific so I don't mind him being brought back and obviously he and Tom Cruise seem to get on very very well because they made a bunch of movies together at this point and obviously the most important thing is Henry Cavill's moustache which derailed another movie but hopefully will elevate this one Mm, I'm rooting for uh, Cavill's moustache and if Paramount have got anything about them they will subtitle the movie Mission Impossible 6, Cavill's Tash. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, because yeah. it, is, it is that famous that it could cost another studio millions of dollars of complex special effects work. Uh, to keep, I mean, it better be a Tash. It better not just be like some peach fuzz <laughs> on his top lip. It really needs to be a huge kind of handlebar walrus-like moustache because hmm. um, that's what I want to see. I've always been surprised by the Mission Impossible films every time two is dreadful I'm not having it it's not a good movie um, I've seen them all I think I saw one and two both at the cinema the rest I've seen on kind of DVD and streaming and stuff but I'll always come back to them and watch them um, and from three onwards they've always surprised me with the quality and they they seem to be getting better hmm. um, although three was really good the 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 J.J. Abrams one. Yeah. Um, but I actually really like the last one. Um, the one with uh, Rebecca Ferguson? Rebecca yes. Hall? Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, the two actresses mixed, mixed up. Um, but uh, I felt like that kind of injected some fresh energy into it. There wasn't just, oh, here come the Mission Impossible guys going to do a heist again. Mm. Um, but yeah. And Tom Cruise, oh, he needs a hit after The Mummy. Um, yeah. So yeah, I... You know, this will be the test whether or not, you know, people have had enough of Mission Impossible um, or whether it can still keep going because, you know, three was like, oh, okay, we've got three now. Now we're at five and now six, you know, is it going to be the law of diminishing returns or are we going to get into Fast and Furious territory where they're just going to keep on going? It also makes you wonder if they're going to eventually make the pivot that they seemed to be hinting at with Rogue, with um, Ghost Protocol, where they introduced Jerry Renner's character as like the younger version of Tom Cruise, and you were kind of thinking, mm-hmm. oh, are they maybe going to 
is is Cruz going to kind of like be sidelined in the later ones and let a younger man have it, like take the reins? And then like his born spin-off that Jeremy Renner was in like wasn't a big success, and they're like, nope, we'll stay with Cruz for a bit. But Jeremy Renner could be sidelined and just hang out with uh, Alec Baldwin in glass offices. So uh, it'd be interesting to see if that uh, if at any point they do make that pivot and say, you know what, Tom, you've carried this franchise. You are uh, the producer. You were the one who assembled this whole thing many years ago as a vehicle for yourself. Let someone else drive for a bit. Um, mm. Because I do feel as if, as, as captivating a film presence as Tom Cruise remains, even in The Mummy, which is a very, very bad movie, he still you know, has his, his, uh, his movie charm charisma to fall back on. Even though it's not really apparent how old he's meant to be in that movie, because he's hanging out with Jake Johnson... And they're talking like they're guys who have been friends for years and been in the <laughs> army together. But there is a good two decades difference between them in age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, I think at one point, Russell Crowe calls, talks to him about being a younger man, when I'm pretty sure Tom Cruise is like two months older than Russell Crowe. <laughs> there is... Uh, you do have to wonder if there is a limit at which he can do these sort of movies and that maybe he needs to shift over from being kind of like an action man to being like... You know, to, to to go back to one of his earlier movies, the uh, the Color of Money, to become kind of more of a, a Paul Newman type. Mm, yeah, I think um, it's noticeable that this year he actually genuinely hurt himself doing a stunt. Because mm, yeah. each each Mission Impossible movie that comes out, we get a new thing of like Tom Cruise doing an insane stunt, which he doesn't have to do, but obviously it's good press um, and. I'm sure the studio don't like it with the uh, the insurance cost of things. And uh, mm. this year he finally broke his leg, so maybe he is getting too old for this shit. Mm. The next one he'll be there'll be a stunt where it's like you have to fall face first into a giant blender and just <laughs> fall between the blades the right moment, uh, and then that will be the end of the Mission Impossible franchise. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, it's a it's a series that I always enjoy. Uh, the second one less so, but it's certainly one that uh, I'm always glad. I'm just glad to see is uh, still trucking along. Um, and I do. I just want to know what the subtitle is because the I like Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. They're fun titles. Uh, I hope this one isn't just a kind of a generic six. They come mm. up with something with something kind of nonsensical, but also kind of enigmatic and fun. Yeah, I can't... Maybe, um, nice try, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's out there, if you want it. If you want yeah, it, Macquarie. Yeah, but just 10% of the gross, we, you can have it. Before we uh, move on to recommendations, we'll just run through some of the sequels we don't really care about <laughs> that are mm. coming out this year. You know, there's a lot of, of big budget movies coming out over the summer that are, because two or three years ago, other movies were successful. We're getting the kind of the follow-ups now. Stuff like Deadpool 2, uh, Jurassic Kingdom? Is that what it's called? Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Fallen Kingdom. Well, Jurassic Kingdom would be so much easier. Mm. <laughs> There's no need for that extra colon in there. Pacific Rim 2. I liked the first Pacific Rim. You decidedly did not. I did but, not. Uh, I'm not massively excited about the sequel. I like John Boyega. Uh, a lot as an actor I think it's he's fun and he can fit in that sort of movie but the first one I liked it because it was uh, you know Guillermo del Toro getting to work on a big canvas I'm not that wedded to the work of Stephen DeKnight the uh, guy who created the Spartacus series although Spartacus was a really good show but uh, I'm not that, that doesn't make me think oh that guy needs to direct movies um, mm. and also it feels like like we were talking about um, Jurassic World the justification for them doing another one feels kind of 
uh, it feels a bit limp in the sense of like the first one ends pretty emphatically with them saving the world. Mm. Like the justification for them coming back doesn't seem that kind of iron ironclad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of other sequels, um, a, pr- a very big one that seems to have slipped by is Mamma Mia Two. Mm, here um, we go again. Yeah, exactly. I like what they did there. Yeah, um, they've they've preempted every critic who for years have been planning to use that as the the joke. It's like, no, we got there first. Yeah, um, so that'll be the big bit of uh, intuitive uh, counter programming to the mm. World Cup um, because movie studios feel it's in, you know like impossible for men to go to the cinema and women to not like football. Yes, uh, I saw the trailer for Mamma Mia. Here we go again earlier and. Uh, when I went to see The Greatest Showman, which is pretty good uh, programming there in terms of the trailers. Uh, and I had two thoughts, one of which was it looks like it's better directed than the first one, which got back got by on Scrappy Charm, but wasn't that well put together as a movie. And also Cher turning up at the end as uh, Amanda Seyfried's grandmother is for the fans of the first Mamma Mia, like the Guardians of the Galaxy showing up in the Infinity War trailer, where you're like... I don't really understand what your plot importance is here, but I guess we're glad to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also, in terms of sequels, Deadpool 2, Mm -hmm. um, the most successful R-rated movie of all time, Deadpool, uh, gets its follow-up. The film that I famously claimed would crash and burn at the box office, (laughs) um, but just didn't and kept going and going and going. So if you want to watch Deadpool make it's one joke for another two hours um then that's out in june not too interested about that because i don't that joke's funny once Mm. but for two hours yeah not so much i guess we have to talk about the fact that ready player one is coming out this year steven spielberg's got a movie out that i couldn't care less about yeah um yeah i'm not that excited yeah tomb raider's coming out the trailer of which i've seen many times uh, at the cinema and has yet to excite me in any way possible. Uh, we've got the the new uh, Jennifer Lawrence movie, which plays a Russian spy. Is it called Red Sparrow? Yes, which is a cool name. It's a very cool name. Um, um, directed by Francis Lawrence, who directed her in several Hunger, Hunger's Games. Yeah. Uh, and also directed Constantine, which is a movie I still rather enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also got a film that's been knocking around for years and years and years, and it's finally come to fruition which is Meg, the film about the giant <laughs> Megalodon shark, which has been brought to life by Jason Statham. And it's based on a series of very poor books about giant sharks from the prehistoric era that have, for some reason, been um, brought to life. Um, and I always liked it because one of the books in the series is called Meg, colon, Hell's Aquarium. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I always loved that idea that there would be, yeah, Hell's Aquarium, that an aquarium would be something they would have in hell, and they would have giant <laughs> sharks in it. Because aquariums are just so quaint and nice. Mm. But not this one. <laughs> um, so Jason Statham's in that. Um, Hopefully he does a spin on the usual, you have to punch the shark in the, in the nose. nose to kind of stop it, by just nutting it. Yeah, just headbutting it. Or being fired, out of a, <laughs> being fired out of like the torpedo bay of a sub. Yeah. With his, his beautiful, shiny pate. <laughs> Um, and lastly, um, after the gritty reboot of King Arthur we had last year, um, that mm-hmm. no one watched or wanted, uh, we're getting a gritty reboot of Robin Hood with uh, Taron Egerton and Jamie Foxx. And uh, which Ben seemed, Mendelsohn. With who, sorry? 
Ben Mendelsohn as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh, so this is now less a gritty reboot of Robin Hood, and it's more a gritty reboot of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yes, Uh, and also it's hot on the trails of the gritty reboot we had ten years ago with Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe. Yeah, so that's something that, you know, that's a thing, that's happening. Um, Yeah, I can't can't muster up a huge amount of... uh, excitement for another retelling of Robin Hood because we also had that BBC version which uh, I think Charlie Brooker derisively compared to like Hollyoaks because everyone it was like super young uh, and because they used to have the location Chirons appear on the screen like you were entering a new era in, uh, area in a video game mm-hmm. and someone on uh, Facebook pointed this out when like the first images were released was like Every version of Robin Hood since Prince of Thieves has been like a radic- has been a gritty reimagination. Why don't you just do like a fun one? <laughs> because clearly no one wants gritty Robin Hood. They want Errol Flynn, the kind of like exciting, exuberant one, or at the very least, kind of like enjoyably cheesy, like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Yeah, Thieves. and I suppose you'll get that with Mendelssohn, who has a kind of similar scenery chewing capacity as uh, Alan Rickman. Mm. Um, yes, but yeah, I mean, like the Middle Ages were gritty, but then like people died at twenty, and you know, like when they got like the the like a minor disease, and they got the plague and mm. shit. Um, it wasn't a great deal of fun to be. Alive. I'm talking about this like it was a real thing, right? It's a fucking myth. <laughs> Robin Hood wasn't even real. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just try and have something. Do like the Disney version. Cast a kind of inexplicably sexy fox in the lead role. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're, they're doing everything else mm. uh, as a live-action version at this point. Might as well get that, that furry dollar, which I imagine is probably more powerful now than it was in the 70s, when that yeah. movie probably created the entire furry subculture. Yeah. yeah, and fresh off the back of Pottersville, uh, which I recommend to everyone <laughs> watching, which is very heavy. Um, yeah, maybe <laughs> they could get some of that sweet furry paper. Yeah, so it's a year with a lot of promise... Uh, but in both directions, a year of many things that could be very good and many things that could be Meg. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> just be... wait for it. We'll move on this time next year. We'll be reeling from our 2018 shot reverse shot film of the year, Robin Hood or Meg <laughs> at number two. Whichever, yeah. whichever beats those out to be the best, uh, who knows? Yeah, the, the bar is set perilously low, people. Mm-hmm. You know, aim a little higher. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends in which we talk about a piece of pop culture that we have enjoyed uh, recently and that we think that you listeners will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend to the listeners this week? Yeah, so like uh, we said at the the start of the episode, I've been doing the 52 Films by Women Challenge um, and I started this year on on New Year's Day with a film called Wiener, which is uh, Mm. um, a documentary about um, disgraced American politician Anthony Wiener who seemed to be the uh, rising star of the Democrat Party, um, but was brought down to the ground in in kind of uh, dramatic circumstances when it revealed that he was uh, doing a lot of sexting, um, tweeting pictures of his junk, um, mm-hmm. and once he got caught once and apologised, and then uh, was kind of, I think he was a senator before, a congressman, he got yep. uh, chucked out and then decided to run for mayor of New York as a kind of like reformed man, second chances, uh, you know, um, you know the kind of uh, great comeback story, and then yeah, did the exact same thing again, and just kept doing it. But he did it whilst this documentary crew was filming him, um, and uh, it's you know it's an incredible portrait of someone's uh, you know gleeful self destruction of them, you know of, of their entire career and lives, um, and um, 
watching his i mean it's it's kind of uh satisfying to watch someone who's clearly an absolute creep um mm. come tumbling down but to watch his family dragged through with him is is much harder but the yeah. film balances those two things uh, really well um and it is uh, thoroughly uh, enjoyable it is um uh, like i say 52 films directed by women it is uh, actually co-directed um, uh, by women, so it's kind of like a joint effort, but it definitely counts. Um, but it's on Amazon, I think, so get it watched. It's very good. That movie has one of the best bits of comedic editing I've seen outside of an arrested episode of Arrested Development, which is when uh, Anthony Weiner is marching in. I think I think the Gay Pride Parade, maybe, mm-hmm. and he's like running around, he's shaking hands with everyone, and he's like waving the flags, and he's like at the centre of attention, and he's like lapping it all up, and he's, he's like presented this really hugely popular figure, and then it cuts to like Bill De Blasio, who then eventually did become mayor, <laughs> kind of like walking, and he's surrounded by like four people, <laughs> and yeah. no one gives a shit about him, <laughs> which uh, in some respects is kind of uh, indicative of like his uh, political career since then. But uh, yeah, that is a that is a very good movie. I'm going to recommend another movie directed by a woman. Like uh, I said, I'm trying to keep an equal balance between movies directed by men and women this year. And to that end, I watched the movie that I've been meaning to watch for a while. I watched Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader, mm. which is a wonderful, funny, uh, often very kind of like uh, filthy, uh, visually filthy at least, in terms of its kind of double entendre through imagery. Uh, movie direct about a kind of naive young cheerleader played by Natasha Leon, whose parents, one of whom is played by Bud Court, who's always kind of great to see show up in movies, um, sent her away to kind of a, a, a conversion camp because they think that she is uh, a lesbian. And so the movie is about her time at this pastel-coloured uh, camp where the counsellors, one of whom is played by RuPaul, in a kind of a very funny performance as a ex-gay who is very bad at hiding the fact that he is still very gay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's about her kind of like struggling with her own sexual identity, but also her the friendship and, and kind of more that she develops with a character played by Claire Duval. And it's just a hugely funny, entertaining movie. It's got a, a really incredible cast. You know, there's Michelle Williams has a small role in it. Uh, Melanie Linsky plays one of the other kind of girls at the camp. Like I said, RuPaul and, and Catherine, Kathy Moriarty plays one of the other camp counsellors. Uh, it's just it's just a really wonderful kind of... I, I don't know if it's a hidden gem so much. It feels like a movie that's developed quite a, a reasonable size cult following over the years, but certainly at the time that it came out in 1999, it was a movie that got criticised for being a little too much like John Waters' movies, and I, I can kind of see that. He's, uh, Jamie Babbitt is playing in the same general area, but, mm. you know, I think... Th- it's not like everyone is making John Waters movies. I don't mind someone kind of like borrowing his style if they have their own story to tell. And I think that she does a really good job of balancing this satire of American mores towards homosexuality and sex in general uh, with like a, a really genuinely kind of like sweet love story between uh, Duval and uh, Natasha Leon. Uh, and it's a, it's a really, really terrific movie. I recommend it to everyone. Yes, I will second that. It is absolutely fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, then please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Please write us a review and recommend us to your friends. It's uh, the best way for us to grow our audience and get new listeners. We are on fa- also on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>